welcome to another episode of Remap Radio. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and this is episode 7 for July 14th, 2023. Today, we are joined by Patrick Klepek. Hi. And Renata Price. Uh... What's uh what's the what's the remap radio retention bonus look like? Oh. Uh well Hello? I don't think I don't think you're gonna be getting the vice executive deal. Oh, I will. Um mm-hmm. I, I don't think you're like this is not the two hundred grand the day after I fake cry in front of everyone I fired uh deal. <laughs> and everyone just sort of takes pity on you because you're so clearly out of the loop or you appear to be so out of the loop that everyone kind of thinks you're just, you know, kind of too dumb to really be evil. But secretly, you're very evil. Uh, so n- none of none of those deals uh, for us. But but as I understand it, uh, one of the executives in question was on a call at Vice the other day and got very angry that it was being called a retention bonus. She will have you know it was a performance bonus. And really, <laughs> given the results, who can argue? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a performance bonus. Really good. Doing really cool. And everyone yeah, obviously, likes it. like uh, the everyone wanted Vice Media to be a big crater, and you know, mm-hmm. look at the depth and breadth of that crater and how much smoke and wreckage <laughs> is in it. Uh, so, by all means, have your have your two hundred have your two hundred grand bonus. Uh, anyway. As always, very different model. We are a listener-supported show. If you enjoy Remap Radio and wish to become a supporter, you can learn more at remapradio.com. Our website has links to our memberful page where you can sign up for monthly or annual plans that give you access to exclusive Remap content and help keep us going as a team. But yeah, as Ren alluded to, one of the things that's been going around the Vice and and ex-Vice water cooler is that in the court documents that have emerged in the bankruptcy filing around Vice, we discovered what a lot of executives were paid at uh, at Vice. And more infuriatingly, we learned that right before the bankruptcy, which, to be clear, that bankruptcy filing is why nobody, including us, has gotten severance from being let go from Vice. And sure sure seemed to come right after a bunch of layoffs that seemed to tie up a bunch of money that they would have to pay out later. I mean, I it's again, not a lawyer. You know, I don't understand the legal implications. I can't say anything about what could have happened here. I'm just saying seems awfully convenient that you laid off a bunch of people and that ah uh, can't give those people money until the government says we can, which is what, what happens once you go into the bankruptcy court. Like the treasury literally has to sign off on that money going going through. But man, that's awfully convenient because it means you don't have to do it for two months. It's it's very much like executive insider trade. I guess that's the point, right? It's like because there's no stock market investors interest here, there's no real inter- insider trading thing. So the only people who get screwed are, are workers. But the yeah, the way this has worked is well, had they waited to file for bankruptcy, they couldn't have given themselves bonuses. But because they went, uh, like the treasury would have had to, uh, the bankruptcy court would have had to approve the bonuses, right? Like once you are in, once you file for bankruptcy, you essentially give up your ability to sign off on the bills that you pay. Someone else has to go 
pay those bills. Like, there's an extra step. And my guess is that the bonuses might have been a red flag. Well, and, like, worth noting that there are kind of two classes of people. So the severance example is is really interesting here because there are kind of two classes of people who fell into the se- the severance bu- uh, bucket. The people who were laid off the day we found out we were being let, let go, the bankruptcy court capped their severance. So they would, would have been entitled to a fair bit of severance just based on seniority, based on our union contract. But the bankruptcy court capped what that severance could be, the position being that this company is bankrupt. Uh, you know, they, the, the, these are extraordinary circumstances. So the company can't just pay out full obligations on all these things. It needs to begin uh, minding, its, minding its pennies. That logic did not apply to the bonuses that were paid out to executives from what we can get from what we can gather in between the firing everybody and the filing for bankruptcy. So this is like and, and literally like I, I think the the dates that people have seen in the court documents indicate like it was literally within a day of the big meetings where everyone's like, oh, it's just such a hard day advice when the day of those people uh letting a bunch of people go they were pocketing tens of thousands uh and in some cases quite a bit more in bonuses uh meanwhile severance is still in the wind the you know the the word from the union lawyers is that the people whose severance was capped will be paid out soon and then people who fall into our situation who were let go after the bankruptcy filing Luckily enough, we will be entitled to full severance, but, you know. I'll believe it when I see it. Where is it? <laughs> because I, be- I, believe, I believe one of the yeah. sticking points was that the paperwork we got from the company included the same language that it will be capped. And then the union lawyer kept telling us, ignore that. It's not true. Even though it's in the paperwork you're signing, it's not true. And so... You know, again, I'll, you know, I'll believe, I'll believe it when I see that show up in an installment or a lump sum. I, it seems like it's going to happen. And like the, but, I, you know, I, <laughs> I just don't know. I don't believe anything they say at this point. Yeah, it's um, like literally there was a GoFundMe for mm-hmm. vice folks that people were donating to to try to get people some funds to tie them over because like for the people who were let go on the day when you first heard about like waypoint going under for instance it's been like two months since that april 28th right i think that was yeah if not exact like roughly like it was late april when when all that happened so you're going on an extraordinary amount of time for the vast majority of people live in new york right like that it is an exception yeah. That you AKA are Savings City. Personal <laughs> yeah. Savings City. Oh, yeah. I mean, a decent that, number of people. If there's one thing I've got, if there's one thing I had come time of layoffs, it was, I was ready to go. I was, I was uh, rearing, just like uh, everyone else here. Uh, you know, a decent number of people probably moved over the, uh, the coast or the, during the COVID uh, sort of era, so to speak. But most people lived in New York. And I'm just a fa- try to fathom... And there's no jobs. There's nowhere for most of these people to go, right? It's just, you're just scattered to the freelance winds. And I got to tell you, those winds aren't blowing all that hard. Well, and then a lot of these folks were in production. So I think a lot of editorial folk who could move did. But a lot of folks that were affected were being told they had to come into the office to use Vice's incredible production infrastructure. 
Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of doors that open out outwards into the hallways. <laughs> yes. On Kent level, so you so so the glass doors will hit people as they walk through the extremely tight hallways. I showed my girlfriend one picture of our basement, and she said it was nowhere near up to code. Not not surprising. It was like the place was was a bit of a place was a bit of a disaster. Oh, but the internet worked great. That was you know it's always good when. A sticking point in a union negotiation like contract is, could you please make the Wi-Fi work at the office that you're asking us to work at? Like I, that worked regularly there, beca- I worked there for over five years. Might have crossed the six barrier by the time, by the time we called time. Every time I was in that office, I logged into their guest network because that's the mm-hmm. network that worked. <laughs> hey, um, hey, guys. Was I ever a lot just allowed into the building once in the in the two in the two year on the almost two years I worked there? Did you ever see me walk into the office? Well, none one of us time did. For well, Rob, you eventually got. Did you eventually get an ID card? I got an ID card. This? I got an ID card, and I think had two visits to the office where, like a god, I strode into the lobby and was like open before me. And scanned through the ID uh, scanner and and walked in and began my day. I think that happened twice in six years. And then COVID happened, and then you yeah. had to reserve a desk, and your ID card didn't mean shit because then you no, had no, to no, show I didn't get them. the ID card until like last November. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, but then you still have to show them the weird green icons to prove that you had a desk. To go I never to. got to do that. I didn't even get to do that. I didn't even get to the desk renting stage because they had uh, my dead name fucked things up on our internal servers so bad that they literally could not let me into the building through like the traditional thing. I had to be invited in as a guest like Pato had to come and get me every single time. Well, I'm surprised that I'm I'm surprised that couldn't be fixed because uh, the company had a chief people officer who made seven hundred (laughs) and fifty thousand dollars a year and she was from Google. So, you know, she's good. Right, uh, right. gotta mm-hmm. be good at the tech stuff, and uh, you know, I like I'm I'm really surprised that the author of the Inclusion Revolution uh, didn't find a way to include Ren on office <laughs> access lists. Um, but you know, as she, as she uh, you know as she reminds us on on many of her LinkedIn posts, uh. Here's a, here's a brief little anecdote about what her job was. Because I always wondered, like, what does the head of HR do at Vice? Last week, an executive woman of color came to me seeking advice about speaking to junior team members about their performance gaps. She said, I feel I can't make any mistakes. It's just if there's no room for error. I spent my career explaining those obvious things to white people, but now I don't know how to teach and mentor the younger generation without fearing that I will offend and turn them away. We both took a deep breath and gave each other knowing looks. To be a woman of color who has risen to corporate executive ranks means living in constant fear of making mistakes. What could be easily ignored and excused, errors in judgment for others could cost us our reputations and livelihoods. We learned early on in our careers to build protective shields and be in a constant mode of Jedi-level tact and diplomacy. Benevolent spaces for reflection and advice were hard to come by, even as her own dignity was violated on a daily basis. I began by reminding her that we are all worthy of grace. That two things could be true. Most people have good intentions and still, from time to time, say something that causes harm and discomfort. I also reminded her that leaders cannot avoid responsibility or constructive criticism. 
that is up to her to engage in the hard conversations. That's just that's just the type of leadership we got over at Vice. Executives comforting Robert. each other about like, are we are we the baddies? No, <laughs> no, your chief gotta- people officer is here to tell you <laughs> you are not the baddies. It's your juniors who suck. If if Remap Radio makes a million dollars a month, I will build the cube. I will build the cube where everything well, hurts. I want an orb now. I've oh, seen that in orb? Vegas. So actually, I'm over the cube and I'm Fuck. about the orbs now. Fuck. So Also, Rob, I, in that uh, little uh, uh, excerpt that you read, you know, you've got an expertise with the, the star and the wars. The Jedis, like, how are they on the diplomatic front? Mm-hmm. Uh. I think the Clone Wars don't speak brilliantly of the <laughs> Jedi capacity to diffuse and mediate. <laughs> Rob, what do you mean? They were so good at going to planets. Don't ask what happened after they went to the planet. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's just it's so it's so funny going back and like for for one thing, if you have a corporate executive who's posting on LinkedIn more than like once a month you got to fire their ass like they're not doing their like they're keeping a blog on linkedin is just unacceptable behavior from anyone with a job that's like moderately important but i guess here's the problem here's the problem rob i actually i i understand where you are coming from on that and the first time i stepped foot back into linkedin in a meaningful way was after our layoffs like i guess i should look at this again add some new people from like my network over the last couple of years that's just what everybody does. Everybody, like, that's just what, like, LinkedIn has turned into something since the last time I looked at it. So I know that your impulse is to, someone can't be on, I was like, every, that is part of the culture, is, like, if you are that level, you are also blogging on LinkedIn, because that has become your primary Yeah, but that level network. is fraudulent. Like, that, that is the thing. Like, I know, it is- but it doesn't matter. To participate in that world requires having that level of social interaction like if you're staying in that stratosphere you are you that must then also participate in, in oh LinkedIn no i'm, I'm with you like I, I i i definitely get where you're coming from like to a degree linkedin reflects the the story that this woman is telling right about like yes. executives coming to each other and be like man do you feel the weight of the world bearing down upon <laughs> your shoulders isn't it incredible that we bear these companies aloft through our effort and through our grace. Don't we deserve $700,000 a year? <laughs> Isn't that just our due? Uh, and I, and I can't stress enough. This is a, this is an HR head who by the end advice, there were not that many employees. I don't know how much HR was left to do. I guess they, I guess when you're doing mass layoffs, it's still probably a lot of paperwork to process, but you know, that was other people doing that. Mm-hmm. And and two, this is a this is an HR office that botched year end evals. The most boilerplate thing that oh you can ask God. people to do is like, <laughs> hey, how, how do you you yourself a one or a five? Which one you think you're good? You think you're kind of mid? Let us know. They were like, we're gonna reinvent it. We're gonna do three sixty evals using this cool new software. Everyone needs to rate each other, review each other, think deeply about each other's work. Uh, offer tons of feedback and we're going to get a jump on it this year we're going to do it like in September and then in November they were like for reasons we cannot get into we have lost all your evals and all those things you all the all those things you wrote 
I read uh, such so, nice things about Patrick and Cotto, and those lost to the void, obliterated. <laughs> they got them back. I believe so. There was actually like a minor revolt within the company because it was really <laughs> impressed upon us, not just by sometimes executive level issues a mandate or on this, like in this sort of realm. And then your direct managers would be like, give you the actual, like, here's how seriously need to take it, how much effort. And we were more or less told, this is important. It sounds like bullshit. It is bullshit, but like, please fill these out earnestly and honestly and spend actual time on them. So everybody did. And then as this was, this was like the first glimpse of the company can't pay basic bills. Like they are beginning to flounder on what in the industry they call vendors. Right. But like, this is like Getty images or like just basic tenants of like what is running a lot of the infrastructure of, of the company and tools for its workforce. And everyone was just like, I, you saw things said in Slack where like people normally don't put this these things here knowing they can be read by the entire company. And it was like, I'm not doing it again. That's fine. I just won't file an end of your eval. And enough of that became widespread that they must have come to some sort of financial compromise with the company. And we're told, we found your data if you want it. But at that point... I don't think that process ever even went through. Well, no. So the 360 review. So the thing is, we got the the stuff we entered back, but it was no longer 360 review. It didn't matter how we rated each other. Right. It was just going to right. be the standard self eval and directs. But the other thing is what they got. I think they worked out with that company. The company would just extract the plain text submissions that yeah. their software got. <laughs> and so you got just like strings of WordPress shit back to you. Uh, that you could it was like like snipping a telegram uh, apart to try to figure out like <laughs> what what part of the eval this this was from, but the thing is like this was the big this was the big like revolutionary idea this HR department had which was like we're gonna we're gonna do a really involved uh, time consuming versions version of this like HR boilerplate exercise we do at the end of every year, and then they lost all of it and everyone had to redo the work using a different system because vice stopped paying for software to use that. Uh, so again, this is, this is what, uh, you know, three quarters of a million dollars in executive comp plus like 40 grand in bonuses gets you, uh, in the, in the, in the executive market. So, uh, yeah, but you know, these people are important because otherwise they wouldn't be going to so many conferences, uh, with names like brave, diverse people in leadership, uh, gala, uh, 2022 or something like that like that's where that's where you know the the the, the wise heads wise heads are at sounds like a fun party though you know but you don't get to do very much you just eat and oh i mean look and... i think like the the how the, do we can we go can i can i, I want to go to one of these the pictures <laughs> from the flame and hot premiere looked fantastic <laughs> um, <Tell> us. <laughs> This was, was this was this person. It's like I was at the Flame and Hot premiere, and that's okay. a movie with important lessons lessons for all of us. Uh, Flame and Hot Cheetos are uh, Latina culture now. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know they, mm-hmm. they they've been this is this is who we are. Uh, but the other part that does really bug me though is the the cynicism of the deployment of like social justice language to basically launder. It's not, like not criminal behavior, but like deeply unethical shithead behavior, right? Where it's like Eric Adams promise <laughs> very much. It's like you are going like, don't worry. You give me three quarters of a million dollars 
And I'm going to be going out there in front of everyone telling people we're fixing all the social justice issues. They're endemic into in our industry. Mm-hmm, you can believe me because mm-hmm. I'm posting pictures about all the talks mm-hmm. I'm, I'm attending about social justice issues att- uh, endemic in our inventory I- industry. By the way, I'm going to fire everybody. So this has been uh, th- this has been a thing that we've all sort of been sitting with and processing uh, this past week. I the thing I wonder about is how do you still show up? For, like we got a lot of friends still have vice. How do you have a normal one at this point? You don't. I I, t- I talk to some of them and they say they don't have normal ones. I mean, we weren't. I mean, we but we've been through those periods before, right? It's like at some point, it's just. I don't know. We were retreating to the podcast. Like you just sort of do the stuff that kind of makes you happy or around like the, the the people that you work with. But otherwise, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know how. Like, do traffic goals matter at that website? But that's anymore? the thing. Like, like, how can you make anyone care? Like, if right. someone isn't super intrinsically motivated to like go do that thing, how are you as a mid level manager going to be like? No, but we really need to do the thing when you don't have that faith yourself. Uh, like it's, it's, it just strikes me as deeply corrosive. Like, I think it is in our situation where it's like, well, I guess we just like head down, like focus on the podcast. That's relatively easy. But the, like, we also had ulterior (laughs) motives, which was, we need to keep this going and people listening so we can promote the stuff we're going to do at the end of this. Right. Like that is, we actually had a pipeline that we were building like podcast to podcast, which is. You know, you know, it's easier to say this on the other side where like that a lot of that basic structure is built. But that was a lot of the worry ahead of that that are not a lot of people that are still there are going to have. Like, I don't know. I guess you do the work because it makes you happy, but it's not necessarily in service of the company. Maybe it's because you're building a resume for yourself to hopefully have another job. Like that's that's ultimately probably it. And if I was in that position primarily as a writer or reporter is like, well, I still need to be relevant because if this is all going to go under, I, I need to get to the other side right. to some degree. And some, some version of doing that is still writing about what's trendy and interesting and would make you hireable. But like, I don't that's know how not- if like someone who is like leadership and vice news is like, hey, we, you know, here's some goals and priorities I want to set. Like, I don't know <laughs> how you're like, great, uh, I'm not doing that. You don't even tell them I'm not doing that. You're just like, the wall comes down and it's like. <laughs> I'm not going to sure, be here. Bud? It's it's super weird. So thoughts go out to the the folks at at, at Vice still still laboring uh, under this this leadership such as it is, and thoughts as always go out to the folks who are who were laid off uh, and are are still looking for and, and hurting from from that lack of lack of severance. It's a really really shitty situation, and I think it is just like salt in the wound to discover the degree to which like. It was an active choice by the people in charge to have it shake out this way. Uh, and they made sure that they would be spared all the pain and inconvenience um, in, that, in that process. Uh, but, you know, if you're looking for, if you're looking for justice in, in, the, in the corporate world. Gamers, uh, gamers, gamers. Yeah, uh, gamers got justice this week. Big win <laughs> for gamers. We won. We, us, everyone on this show, we won. Don't investigate that claim. Hope you like your salt, FTC. Hey, I did see, I, I was reading some forum threads, and there were people essentially 
they had bought the dip on Activision, knowing that the winds were probably blowing yeah. in the direction of it. And I was like, you know what? Can't knock that hustle because you saw that you saw Activision stock just go like as soon as this went through. Uh, yeah, no, I mean that's the so we had the we had the uh, trial about the preliminary injunction blocking the Activision Microsoft merger. It's been uh, going on for, for for weeks now. We finally got a ruling, and the long and short of it is that the judge did not grant the preliminary injunction to for, by the FTC to block the merger. So it is uh, provisionally allowed to go ahead. But the way these things tend to work is that if there's not a pre- preliminary injunction, then things tend to just close after that. They're, they're ten- like in general, the pattern is things do not uh, hit for the roadblocks from here. But a lot of that also depends on on custom and form and what the FTC decides to do. So uh, before we get into what's going to happen, though, why don't we talk a little bit about what that ruling was? Patrick, you prepared a, a little primer uh, on that. So uh, maybe we can just dig into that working off that working off that primer a bit. Yeah. So um, Judge uh, uh, Corley uh, issued a 53 page uh, opinion, um, uh, essentially. You're right, rule it, ruling in favor of Microsoft and Activision to kind of close on this. I think July 18th is the deadline that they are trying to hit before they either need to agree to move that deadline back, or if they didn't agree to move the deadline back, then Microsoft was going to owe a several billion dollar sort of like breakup fee uh, as a result, which is one of those kind of poison pills that is often as a part of one of these uh, acquisition mergers uh, to try and push them along for all sides, <laughs> like to, to, to get to an agreement by the end. Uh, so Corley writes in uh, uh, in their ruling, uh, quote, Microsoft's acquisition of Activision has been described as the largest in tech history. It deserves scrutiny. That scrutiny has paid off. Microsoft has committed in writing, in public, and in court to keep Call of Duty and PlayStation for 10 years on parity with Xbox. Uh, and then later, it's kind of an important sort of takeaway, was, uh, quote, the FTC insists Microsoft's offer is simply insufficient, and so arguing it relies exclusively on PlayStation CEO Jim Ryan's testimony. The FTC's heavy reliance on Mr. Ryan's testimony is unpersuasive. Sony opposes the merger. Its opposition is understandable. Before the merger, Sony paid Activision for exclusive marketing rights that allowed Sony to market Call of Duty on PlayStation, but restricted Xbox's ability to do the same. After the merger, the combined firm presumably will not agree to such restrictions. Before the merger, a consumer wanting to play a Call of Duty console game had to buy a PlayStation or an Xbox. After the merger, consumers can utilize the cloud to play on the device of choice, including it is intended on the Nintendo Switch. Perhaps bad for Sony, but good for Call of Duty and future gamers. Uh, you know, in this specific uh, argument uh, between the FTC, uh, Microsoft, Sony, like kind of all parties involved, a lot of this hinged on Call of Duty specifically. I think if you wanted to take a big picture look at what they were arguing over, it was Call of Duty and the importance that singular franchise has to various parties uh, involved, whereas the uh, the CMAs, you know, the, the UK's equivalent of the FTC, hinged their argument on the future of cloud computing and uh, Microsoft's control over the stack of of games, service, um, and everything uh, surrounding that. And essentially here, the, you know, the judge come, kind of comes down on, look, uh, they committed to keeping Call of Duty there now and in the future. And absent that, this does not seem, despite the large number associated with it, uh, to be something that needs to be squashed. Essentially, didn't take the cloud 
argument all that seriously. That said, the FTC didn't push it as the central centrality of their argument either. There was really about um, Call of Duty being the kind of game that if was uh, gatekept by Microsoft would follow in the footsteps of what Microsoft has done in the past. Look at ZeniMax, right? We saw plenty of emails between uh, ZeniMax and, and Microsoft over the decision post-acquisition to turn those games exclusive. And Starfield going to be one of the biggest games of the year, regardless of quality, and that is going to be exclusive to Xbox and PC. Um, so that kind of takes us to where we where we are now. Uh, are now. Uh, the FTC's argument was always kind of seen, perceived as weak, um, and so I'm I'm not shocked by this decision. Um, and a lot of it sort of like hinges on what do you think about the FTC's sort of like role going forward. If there's any movement to to block this, uh, pass this decision, um, and sort of just more broadly what this represents about any any attempts to curtail mergers and acquisitions in big tech and, and the broader consolidation we've seen for the past couple of decades. I, I will say that I'm a little bit skeptical of the read that like this trial on the whole was a mistake. You know what I mean? Like there, yeah, there, I, there are I, pieces I, I'm, being I'm written and I'm totally like, I'm, I'm so fucking skeptical of every time someone's like, wow, the FTC shows that it couldn't actually win this fight. And it's like, yeah, the FTC showed that it could not win this specific fight. But like, I just, I just think that the, you know, they're toothless because they're not winning is just like, I, I, I think it's a real undersell of, of what is, I think, like pretty good regulatory practice. I just don't know what it means to be too, like, too, like, what does that mean? Like, it is not as though there is a strength meter that is filled. Obviously, it would be better if they won, right? Like, it is better, right. like, it would make, it would make, it would, it would discourage these sorts of agreements or uh, proposals more strongly in the future. But yeah, Rob, like this is something we've talked a lot, a lot on on our discussions on on this point. Is like, what does it mean for the FTC to bring this, even if they lose? Yeah, I think organizations build competencies, like that is, and they 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 build those by doing things, and they lose them by not doing them. And one thing that you can say about the con FTC is that this organization has been toothless for a while and has been hesitant to intervene on on mergers. Uh, there were a lot of stories when Khan t- took over about resistance in the organization about how she was doing things and the cases she wanted to bring. This was an organization that was originally built to take these fights and make companies work hard to prove that they could uh, like thread anti they could they could thread regulations around uh, like maintaining competition. And then over the years, the FTC became a bit of a ru- rubber stamp uh, organization. And didn't take these fights uh, very, very often. And, you know, I think there's probably a parallel to the way federal prosecutors tend to operate, which is that they do not go to trial unless they have a preponderance of evidence because, uh, like, conviction rates are so important to them. So, similar things happen to regulatory agencies. But I do think, like, I saw enough from industry, like, legal reporters to suggest that the FTC's like legal approach here didn't seem as sharp as it could have been. Uh, now, admittedly, I think they are also running up against a judicial framework that's formed over the years. That's very deferential to companies. Like I think one thing I've, I've seen in the wake of this that I really want to push back on is the judges are not neutral referees. The, the trial is not some sort of like objective verdict on the virtue of an argument the judges are political actors who in many cases have their own ties to these industries and also to these like legal, these legal frameworks. Uh, and, and so like 
I tend to be like I tend to be really skeptical of this notion that oh like the FTC didn't like play this play this court play this play this case well they didn't they didn't fight it tactically smart in in court and it's like kind of but you're also trying you you know the refs have a bias and you have to try to work around it so I I tend not to put a lot of stock in this notion that oh like. The FTC really blew this because if they if they'd argued smarter, they they would have won. I'm not so sure that's true, given the way courts have have tended to rule on these things. Yeah, I think that's the other thing that like bothers me about the the line that like the FTC is being overly litigious to the point where it's like making bad optics. And the answer, like the thing for me is like true, like bad optics for who? Like like who who to whom is the are these bad optics an issue? Well, we're, the, we're, we're wasting we're the taxpayers' money. It's judges, like Ren? It, it, That's true, Patrick. We are. You know, and as and I really needed those 13 cents. Um, thank you for thank you for speaking truth to power for my contribution to this to this ongoing court case. Well, and that's and, and, and that's the, like there are there are outlets like I, I think specifically it was an article on the information, uh, which tends to be a really deferential to the tech industry uh, outlet. That's mm-hmm. like shame on the FTC for wasting taxpayer money. And it's like that's always an argument you hear when no one actually gives a shit. Uh, you know, it's like, what does that mean? Like, how much did it cost? Like, what did it take away from? Yeah, very like, little. isn't this just isn't just the budget that they are assi- like, are they borrowing money from the precious treasury right. in order to like take this case? Like, I guess it's just part of the budget they're assigned and then they allocate the resources, you know, accordingly. And you're right, Rob, like the the, the articles I was looking at from the information market watch, like they all all the framing is, you know, like these these L's are adding up. Um, and it's just, you know, just, they need to, they need to pick some, some, some smaller wins, stack those up. And it just seemed every time I would go into those articles, trying to like, this is like a fundamental question I had is like, what does it mean for the FTC to take the loss? Like, what does that, what does that practically mean? Like, is it just erosion and morale at the organization? Is it actually that it, uh, erodes their ability to make like, does that influence, like, judges and how seriously they take any of their arguments, like, writ large? Like, I don't know, because most of the quotes I saw in those articles were, like, talking to conservative think tanks. They're like, see, like, this is why they shouldn't do that. And it's like, yeah, but if they would say that regardless. That's the point of the conservative and legal think tanks is to invent reasons for this rubber stamping to occur at all. And, uh, you know, the one thing I can't, I haven't quite figured out and I can't square and I haven't read enough of this to... um come down one or the other is like, I always come back to this like AT&T case, right? In which they promised not to up the prices on consumers as a result of what was the Time Warner merger, right? And then the first thing they did was up the prices. They just, what they said in court, up in flames. And a lot of what the judge here is saying is like, look, they got these agreements. Phil Spencer raised his hand in court. Have you seen his t-shirts? He said, Call of Duty will be on Xbox or PlayStation for the next 10 years. And is, you know, there are so, there's so much wiggle room, right? And I, do I think that suddenly tomorrow, Microsoft's going to announce that Call of Duty is like exclusive to Xbox? Well, don't forget no, all but, those Nintendo gamers who are going to get their feast on <laughs> yeah, Call of Duty I know. as part of this. God. But it's just like, mm-hmm, is, mm-hmm. is that promise that Phil Spencer hand up under oath in court, is that just a fancy version of what AT&T did? And that, and that, I think that's where you can, that, that's where the criticism against approving this deal comes from. Is like, is this just a, a, a more elaborate version of a, of a corporate lie that they'll, they'll dance around later? Probably. It's, 
It's what we said on the other podcast. These fuckers can just say anything. They can say anything. Even even a standing on, like, even on literally the stand, they can say anything. And it, I don't know. I also think that, like, the, the way people talk about cases like this makes it feel like there's a big meter that fills up, that when you fill it up all the way, you get regulation. Yeah. And it's like, no, you don't fill up the regulation meter. Like, like the FTC losing this case or like not getting what they wanted from this case does not mean that they like lost points in like the house cup of the FTC versus corporations. Like, what are we doing? This is clown shit. Well, I, so I think um, so there's two things. One is to Patrick's point about these these assurances. I think one thing that has changed is previously the assurances could be whatever and then companies would reach them immediately and they treated the process with such contempt that they could actually clown on these judges immediately after a deal closes and they knew nothing would happen i do wonder if that has changed i I do wonder if like they didn't observe these assurances uh like for for a decent length of time whether or not you would see it come back and suddenly uh they look they look worse for having just close the deal through these assurances and then going back on them. I am. I do think the sense of like effectively having more cops and visible speed traps as it were is going to slow right. down traffic. It's going to have, it's going to have a chilling effect. Yeah. Uh, but, but the, but the, the thing I do think where I could see this being a net negative is that, and this is why people don't like losing cases, especially like this is, each time you have a judge go on the record and say, here's how I decided and here's where I found their argument lacking, it does become uh, not necessarily controlling precedent for like parallel cases, but it does sort of add up to the sense of, okay, well, the legal framework everyone is operating in is this. And so each time you go against it and judges keep reconfirming that uh, and you keep losing, now it becomes easier and easier for judges to hold to these 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 tired legal frameworks. Now, we talked before about how the framework used to be fairly suspicious of corporate consolidation and mergers. And then it was kind of the Robert Bork uh, consumer price framework that it caused all of this to be reinterpreted. And now we're kind of in this trap where, and I saw this argument made that like, well, unless, you know, unless Congress clarifies what it meant by, by with some of these statutes, uh, the FTC doesn't really have a card to play. And what's funny there is Congress did clarify what it meant when these laws were passed, like back in the 50s. It's just that judges reinterpreted them and changed what the law meant. And now it's like, well, Congress has to go back and and sort that out. But in the meantime, Congress has moved considerably to the right. Right. We're also seeing like a, a, a just a broad shift in the culture and the function of our judiciary. And like the last like, you know, 50 years, like the, the function like of the judiciary in the political sphere is like completely changed. And like. This is one example of like, I, I don't think it actually like, I, I think precedent, legal precedent is like mattering, at least from like an outsider's perspective. I'm not like a legal theorist, but it appears to be mattering less and less um, in, in ways that are like, I, I don't think it matters if you're like establishing that much like negative precedent because like the judiciary is becoming so unreliable in terms of like sticking to that precedent that like I... Truly, like, the way that, like, the far right has been, like, winning fights has been taking every single goddamn fight, regardless of whether or not, like, it actually makes sense and fits with an existing legal framework. It's a, sh- because it's a it shotgun doesn't... approach, right? And, like, exactly. the, the, like, the lower courts seem to be in the habit of enshrining status quo, 
and then mm-hmm. the highest court like are in the business of upsetting the apple cart and inverting the status quo and then watching that filter filter back down um which is new right which is which is new um but i'm but i'm with you it's like yeah that is definitely the rights approach in general is to just just bring a billion cases and then all all that matters is, is one's got to slip through um and and affect all, all the others and i mean but it is one thing i do think about uh, rob to your point is um i am obviously less familiar with the uh the more stringent regulation that we've seen come out of the eu um in let's say the last five years like more specifically that does seem to be like a congressional equivalent bodies working more hand in hand with regulators to be more stringent and what we have here is a little bit uh, in the same way that sort of like so much rests on political decisions in the Supreme Court. It seems like in this specific vein, we seem to be resting a lot of, hey, the way to make antitrust go away is just Lena Khan wrote that paper on Amazon and now we put her in charge of that agency and she's going to fix it. And absent like Congress stepping in to work hand in hand with the FTC, we are going to be left with the FTC taking court battles in a, in a court that's like stacked, you know what I mean? Like if these actors are working in concert with one another, like it's it works in the favor of these groups that say the FTC is being too aggressive. Yeah, because Congress is essentially a non-actor um, in this. Like you'll see like folks on the right love to get up and talk about how much they hate big tech. But I don't see any legislation being passed to put any teeth to the things that the FTC is, you know, could work in conjunction with the sorts of things they're trying to unwind or stop. Yeah, it's like I think. Well, it tends to be when conservatives talk about that. What they what they mean is that like uh, Facebook should be legally required to <laughs> yeah, yeah. show you your racist grandpa's posts and Ben Shapiro's <laughs> posts. Uh, yes. like we saw this literally play out like last week with Threads, right? Where it was like you know it was it's biased against the right. And immediately, it's like we're just going to recommend Ben Shapiro to everybody. Everyone needs to know <laughs> uh, what what Ben Shapiro is is angry about today. What movie didn't Ben understand this week? Uh, go to Threads <laughs> to to find out. Uh, but I think the the other thing that does so with regard to the rights approach, like I do think some of the avenues of attack that they like they're consistent assault on the voting rights act had its big break breakthrough with with uh the roberts court and via that they've now packed state legislatures and the judiciary at every level to entrench their power uh and so like there is something like their approach has worked in part because they had a few structural advantages that they like turned they leveraged into blowing the whole system apart uh now the flip side of that is does so anyone think the judiciary is real in the way that you did no, like 10 years not, ago? I don't. That, that's the other thing is that like the judiciary fundamentally does not act on like, I mean, kind of hasn't always, but like is no longer like a good faith organization. And like it, it, the, the idea was historically that the judiciary is like and the arbiter of law, right? It is about interpretation and like a very particular like school. The legal backing of the United States is changing. Like, as a, as a country, like, the way that our legal system works on a, like, social level is shifting in ways that are, like, kind of fascinating. Um, but, like, yeah, the, I, I don't think that the courts serve the function that they did, like, 20 years ago. They, they serve a function, but it is a different function that operates on different rules. Uh, you know, you could look towards, you know, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court 
uh, election just a couple of months back, right? In which you had for more or less the first time a a, a Democratic-backed judge explicitly saying, hey, vote for me. I'm for abortion rights. And that's something the right has understood for a very long time, but is something that the mm-hmm. left is just catching up on. Like, no, actually, this whole facade that we like to pitch that the judiciary is like calling balls and strikes, which look at baseball. Very difficult for those umps to call balls and strikes. I don't think that's a great analogy. We're about to replace them with robots. That is happening in the next five years. And look, we're against algorithms. We're against AI. We're very skeptical. But also, maybe the umps should go away because no. they're really bad. Oh, well, no, 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 no. Fuck you, Patrick, because because you can't cheat with a robot. I think it's important that people can cheat. That's part so of the actually, game. I'm actually, I do like, I, I'm kind of with Ren here. We're part of the friction of the game is that the umpires <laughs> frequently suck. But I do think, like, the, the, the robo-ump is to the umpire what the speed camera is to the cop patrol car. Right, it is the like these these people can't be trusted to efficiently administer this. And they're not accurate enough, so it's better to have it automated. But going back to the judiciary thing, um, well, just <laughs> you brought up Wisconsin. I think like you have signs of someone like just if nothing's true and everything's permitted, kind of when you're playing according to these Calvin Ball rules, then you do get things like uh, was a Tony Evers using his line item thing to fund <laughs> education yes! forever. Things that are plainly. Bad face, not yeah. not That's legal cheating. against the spirit like of the cheating law. Within the lines, but <laughs> if you've decided to cheat comprehensively and you've effectively tried to end democracy on the state level, but you just can't rig the statewide elections enough, then fuck you. Like we'll mm-hmm. we'll do it this way because your 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 law is no more legitimate. Your law is less legitimate than my pen here. Uh, you know, sort of hand editing and whiting out a document. Uh, to to substantially change the law. But the, the last point I make is I think the, the right has through think tanks, through things like the Heritage Foundation, they have broad agreement on a host of issues. Some like social issues, but also economic ones. And so like when you get a right wing judge, you tend to get a person who's going to rule in a certain way on a host of issues. The left doesn't have that. When the left goes like appointing judges, for instance, they still like appointing prosecutors and not career defenders, right? They still like appointing people who worked in corporate law, not people who like were filing class actions uh, against major corporations. Like the, 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 the left's like the left and center left tend to align on issues of social justice and in terms of like mat- as matters of like broad principle and individual liberty but in terms of like structural issues they tend to diverge pretty far because like the center left is like we can guarantee the legal right for all these various things to happen but we are not going to have any sort of regulatory framework or framework for like enforcement that empowers people uh, in right. that way and protects them from the predations of capital. Right. I mean, like, and this is like, at the end of the day, like, it's the same, it comes back to, for me, a lot of the same stuff that, like, what we were talking about earlier does, where it's just like, it, it, it's pageantry past a certain point, right? Right. There is like corporate pageantry that is like designed to, like, set, like, corporate and like political pageantry that just like is designed to, like, procedurally reward uh, the worst people in the room. Uh, 
because they just can, right? Um, I don't know. It's it's yeah, and and it's also the Eric Adams effect, where it's like you know the the right also continues to like co opt identity politics in like really egregious ways that like continues to like un uh, undermine um, like various like institutions. Not, not that the mayor of New York has ever been a good position, like the. However, no, but but there there is a point there where it's like when you have a big tent organization like Democrats writ large, there can be real problems of identifying the wolf in sheep's clothing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, no, admittedly, you should have been able to catch Eric Adams. You should uh, have been no, able to see no, that. No, 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 oh no! I, I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, primary think, oh, voters. Oh, come on! Probably. You really, okay. you really think I was that's worried. what Rob was implying? No, I was worried for a second that Rob, for a second, was like, mm, "I know Renata said she wanted to put that fucker in the cube." However, Ren was like, "I like this guy's weird bedroom in in this basement <laughs> apartment. I'm I'm sold. Actually, this is this is a real New Yorker to me." Mm-hmm. No, I, like I just I I tend I tend to think of it as like there are sometimes like. The Democrats broadly struggle to align on a lot of issues, which means it te- they tend to squander power because you have cases where I think Corley's a Biden judge and Khan's mm-hmm. a, Khan is a Biden appointee. And these two these two didn't align uh, particularly successfully. Like Biden has made it a priority to get things moving in a certain direction. And this judge was like. No, nah, I'm going to definitely decide, like, to make this case about Call of Duty and the FTC is is kind of gone down that that cul-de-sac as well, but that's how we're going to to rule on it, and we're going to sort of set off to the side a lot of these broader issues about antitrust. And so this is this is what you what you tend to get, I guess. From here, in general, historically, the FTC backs off when they lose cases like this, uh, and it is possible that they would want to avoid appealing it because you would not like to have an even worse precedent hit a higher court. But they could. It's, yeah, it's possible. They, there was some reporting coming out after um, the ruling came down that they were leaning towards an appeal. But as of this recording, we have not heard one way or the other. Uh, the statement that they put out was, uh, we're disappointed in the outcome given the clear threat this merger poses to open competition in cloud gaming, subscription services, and consoles. In the coming days, we'll be announcing our next step to continue our fight to preserve competition and protect consumers. Um, but immediately also had the CMA uh, in, in the UK, who had been essentially the one regulatory body up to this point that had tried to put a stoppage to this. Uh, they essentially said they were open to having a discussion with Microsoft, which essentially seems like it seems like maybe the FTC could do the appeal. That does sort of strike me as like, hey, maybe you don't want to take an L that big. Like, let let Mike let the let it go through, learn your lessons, like lick your wounds, move on to to the next big thing. Um, but it's not outside of the realm possibility. I'm just not, I'm not convinced based on their approach here that necessarily they would have a lot of success on on the second try, um, and that maybe this should be more of a exercise uh, for for the next one because it sounds like the CMA is essentially going to take a couple of concessions, sign off on it, and then the FTC is going to be on its own. Well, you know, the problem with the stacking of the higher courts is that it means that all of the lower courts immediately lose their efficacy. Because it means, like, if you just do it, if you appeal up enough times, you will get to the court that is, like, 
that is that is the that is the hard win condition of controlling the upper courts is that like once that happens if there is like significant control of the upper courts like the appeals process completely becomes like fundamentally useless um, well and, then, and like like the judge in this case specifically this was pointed out by uh matt stoller who we've had on in in the past rob rob interviewed uh them hell yeah uh, uh, um, yeah <laughs> please matt Stop saying weird shit about Josh no. Hawley on Twitter. No, like, he's <laughs> let him cook. <laughs> no, no, let, me like, something domain, let me tell you about something about domain ex- expertise. Matt Stoll is somebody you should like absolutely listen to when it comes to things like competition law and like how markets <laughs> are working. And beyond that, you can just be like, that's cool, Matt. Hey, <laughs> do you need hey, another beer, bro? Hey, I'll, like, you know, I'll bet you're right. The Dolphins are going all the way this year. Like, <laughs> Again, domain expertise. He believes you're, lots of things. You're right. You're right. And w- one thing that uh, Matt pointed out uh, in in their newsletter responding to this, which is worth, which is definitely worth reading. Their the, Matt's newsletter in general is worth 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 reading. The weird stuff happens, like many things on social media. Like it's less, it's you get less mm-hmm. of that in the in the newsletter stuff. Um, but pointed out, like one, like the like the the, the judge's son <laughs> was uh, worked for Microsoft, uh, and the two she specifically pointed out, like, hey. I mean, this July 18th is coming soon. Uh, you know, Microsoft really does want to wrap this up. There was nothing preventing the judge from putting essentially extra fire underneath Microsoft and Activision by saying explicitly or just implicitly by not ruling by July 18th that, hey, you can either pay that, that billion, you know, several billion dollar fine or like renegotiate. And extend out, you know what I mean? Like there, there were tools even for this judge, even if like that they could have grabbed at, and by choosing to not grab at them or explicitly say, "Hey, they really want to get this wrapped up," like I, you know what? I should probably fast track my decision too. That's I think that's what you're talking about, Robin. Like the, the kind of judges that are assigned are then not only deferential to sort of like Bork style interpretation of like how we should do corporate mergers, but also. Well, I mean, Microsoft said that they want to get this done, so I guess I should probably move along my opinion. And that's that's not the place that you want to be necessarily. And it's it's you know worth noting from that from uh, from Stoller. There are some exceptions, of course, but Corley was not one of them. Her son works for Microsoft, and it was not a great sign that she saw no problem hearing a case with such a blatant conflict of interest. After listening to her comments during closing arguments, I realized she was not interested in market structure and trusted uh, Microsoft executives to be honest about their intentions. He softened that a lot from what he said on Twitter right after the ruling. I will, I will say that. Uh, He's gotten really hung up on the, the sun. Like, if I've read all of Matt's pieces on this, and this was one of those where I was like, Matt, shut the fuck up. <laughs> like, I, I, I get it, it. It's a point, but, like, became, like, this is well, and also, this is it. This is the this is the this is actually the skeleton key that explains everything about this case. I was like, I don't I don't know that that's true. I don't, I don't know. know it's, it's a weird th- like here. Here's the thing I, I will say, like in general. No, I, I think the companies like this are big enough that like the presence of one uh, person in the depths of the company uh, being related to an, an interested party in a regulatory case like that's not necessarily grounds for recusal. recusal but on the other hand. It is worth thinking about the power. Like, we do know that these companies, like, frequently hire very connected people to high-level positions that they appear to not be qualified for. And they don't do that out of the goodness of their hearts. 
it is a way to build these like connections and like levels of influence. And so to a degree, the notion that like these companies maintain stables of upper middle class or upper wealthy, like kid, like, you know, kids and relatives of influential people kind of as just a thing that just have in the back of your mind that, you know, your son or your, you know, you know, sibling works for us and has a very good job working for us. Uh, and we, we do right by them. So, you know, to, <laughs> rule how you will. I, I, I do think there's, there, there is something to, to that. I don't think, I think if this were a better line of attack, the FTC might've made more noise about it, but they seemed content to have this judge, uh, you know, handling their case. It just, it, it just broke bad. Um, you know, that, that's going to happen. Uh, but I, I, I think, you know, we always, we were surprised it got this far. We were always sort of convinced that it would, there would be an off-ramp uh, for this confrontation somewhere. It went farther uh, than we thought. We got a lot of information out in the open about this, about this industry, about the motivations Which is great. for this merger. It was totally worthwhile, like, just for the exposure of how these people talk to one another. Like, for that, as a, a industry observer, I like, you will be pouring over these documents for a long time to come. Well, and I think more and then also some of those documents do say things that are more alarming than like, oh, we'll have Call of Duty on PlayStation for 10 years. Some of these documents also say things like, uh, hey, I'm confused about how we're saying we're not making any of these things Xbox exclusive because I thought we were definitely making them Xbox exclusive. Or they say things like, you know, we could just spend Sony into the ground, right? They they, they do say things like that. So, uh, you know, the, the exercise is, is not in vain. Uh, it is like, you know, it is, this is partly how evolutions in this type of lawmaking law enforcement tend to unfold. There's going to be fits and starts. Uh, and honestly, here's the thing. I, I, you know, we care deeply about the games industry, obviously. I'm still like not going to be up nights because the FTC lost this case. Like this was always a, there were pros and cons to the deal. No matter what, I don't know if the precedent doesn't get uh, extended too far, but like, when you're thinking about the things that are actively affecting the fabric of life in this country, this is not one of the cases that immediately hits home, right? There's, there's a lot of other places where this type of merger and acquisition activity, uh, you know, profit, uh, you know, price gouging, uh, it has a, has a much more direct material impact on people's lives. And there, there are more, there are more important and impactful areas for regulators to work. Uh, so, you know, this is this is part of the fabric of how this is all unfolding. Um, Rob, um, if it was up to you, would you have Lena Khan go after Wex next? Oh, my fucking God, bro. <laughs> I if I could, if I I can't, get my, I can't get my prescriptions refilled. Nope, neither can I. Oh, wait, are I you, are you, do you not have your prescription coverage? No, my God, fucked. So I had to go. I, I, I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. It took me a month, but I've like finally ordered sleep meds. They're sitting behind me. It took me. A, I have not slept in a month. Um, oh my fucking god. Oh, I want to put them in the cube. Sorry, Does he Rob, explain your screenshot? I did not totally parse 
Oh, if you post it. So oh, no, 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 no. Rob, I post it. This, I, yeah, yeah I dust off my Twitter account because I think more people need to see this than than Bruce guy. <laughs> okay, let me let me go to this. So you're incensed. <laughs> so I'm willing to put this into the I torture queue. Clear about a couple things. <laughs> Wex is the benefits management company that Vice switched to when it kind of seemed like they wanted to do less good benefits. <laughs> I think we worked with Discovery Benefits for a while, and that shit just kind of worked. And you use your little FlexBend card, and it just kind of worked. And then Wex entered the picture, and stuff didn't work as well. And they'd be like, "Ah, we rejected that claim." Uh, and then you go to Wex, and Wex is like, "You know what you could do is spend that FlexBend money in our store of widgets and supplements." Uh, so that's 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 how Wex rolls. But when I when we were laid off, and we get like the you can move on to Cobra coverage. You get a letter that has a login to, to Wax, and you can extend your COBRA benefits, which is in the U.S. Like, you lose your company benefits. COBRA is continuation of, like, health insurance during a period. Yeah, right. And, and Vice will take a portion of that. Oh, Vice is so generous for subsidizing a portion of our monthly premiums, as yeah. long as it's within the severance cap. Um, in addition, Rob. So... But the thing is, to like even log in, Wex has your email. Wex will not email you any information about when payments are due or like the state of coverage or if things are about to lapse. You go into the little like communication preferences thing, there's one box uh, mailing address. That's it. How do you want to get messages? Which mailing address do you want us to snail mail you info about stuff? So repeatedly, it feels like there's times they're trying to run out the clock on you, like filing for these benefits and like, you know, taking these on. So I was unaware that, like, I had not paid to, like to to start the coverage um, because they were like, "Oh, you've got a you've got a grace period," and then I log in and like none of my shit's working. So I log in. It's like, okay, it's still saying this stuff is pending. I owe money. Okay, I will pay. Every time you pay wax, no matter what method you choose, beyond sending a, a check through the mail to their address. There is a $20 convenience fee for the transaction. $20 just going $20. straight to Wax or paying using a credit card or a direct checking account debit. Uh, uh, Rob, come on. It was really convenient, though. So, like, nobody else could do this. Nobody else. It's not like I just set up a business where I learned, like, how, e- how trivially easy this is. $20 uh, on a $180 charge. To, to pay wax. This is the type of shit, like, when, like, this is another, like, Biden priority, Lena Khan's been talking about the junk fee bullshit. Example here of... Yeah, I wasn't totally joking. I, I, I did feel like it was illustrative of, hey, gamers, like, that this is the kind of stuff that, like, is actively making people's lives worse, that seems micro, but is macro. And also, even though I've paid up, Every time I try to fill some prescriptions, I'm getting the notice that like, hey, your Cigna RX policy mm-hmm. isn't active. So I have to like email Vice HR and see if Daisy can take time away from, uh, you know, writing inspiring messages on, on uh, LinkedIn about uh, the the life lessons that Flaming Hot can teach us. Uh, <laughs> And hopefully get some from that office to explain to me what the fuck is going on with my family's uh, prescription coverage. Wait, sorry, Rob, I may actually have a slight answer to this. When did yeah. you sign up? When did you uh, do this? Like 10th? last month. But I paid oh, the last other. Month. But, but I paid uh, like last week. Okay, was it after Wednesday? Yeah. 
They only instate coverage on Wednesday. <laughs> well, we will see. Uh, I guess tomorrow is the moment of truth. Thank you for that information. You couldn't, you couldn't ask an insurance company to work seven days a week or five. Oh, my God. All should, right. we a, should we get a break? We should. We should. It's, this, was, this was cathartic. I feel good. Uh, we're going to take five. I'm going to switch to a different ice pack so I can survive in this office for another hour and uh, back after this. One of the most normal morning routines is a bowl, some milk, some cereal. What <laughs> changes as you get older is you might want to modify what you're putting into that bowl with the milk. If you suddenly want to cut back on sugar or you want to add more protein, you're thinking about fitness goals, but you don't want to give up the deliciousness of what you're putting in that bowl, you might want to think about Magic Spoon. Uh, because with Magic Spoon, you get all those flavors you love, high protein, less sugar, and as someone with kids, the idea that I can show them that these cereals can have all of these things and you can think about what's in your body every morning seems really good. Magic Spoon comes in a variety pack of four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. This pack has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and four to five grams of net carbs. Only 140 calories a serving, it's high protein, has zero grams of sugar, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. And look, you put peanut butter in anything, I'm there, which is why that's my favorite one and I'm hiding it from my children. You can go to magicspoon.com remap to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code remap at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of high-protein cereal at magicspoon.com slash remap and use the code REMAP to save $5 off. Thanks to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. Hey, REMAP Radio listeners. Rob here. You know, the time was I'd come up with a meal plan for the entire week, and then I'd trawl through the grocery stores making sure I had everything I needed right on budget to make those home-cooked meals. Unfortunately, times have changed, and speaking of time, I don't have quite as much of it as I used to. You know, there's a podcast empire to be overseen. But I can't just order fast food and pizza delivery every night. My budget, and unfortunately, my increasingly delicate stomach won't allow it. Fortunately, for folks in the same boat as me, there's Factor. Factor gives you 35 options each week to make meal planning easy. And not just for dinner. They have breakfast foods and snacks covered as well. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. But it's just as convenient delivering the food you need right to your door. And now, if you head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off, that's, right, that's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off. And now you can head to factormeals.com slash remap50 and use code remap50 to get 50% off. That's code remap50 at factormeals.com slash remap50 to get 50% off.
I will say, shout out to the comrade from Enterprise Rent-A-Car, who was going on at least a couple of these uh, LinkedIn blogs to drop the message, pay your workers their severance. Thank you, comrade. I am going to, the next time I need a sensible sedan for, a, for, a, for some driving after a, after a long flight, I'm going to Enterprise. Or maybe this guy can pick me up and we can talk about guillotines. <laughs> so, uh, Patrick. Yeah. I know you wanted to skip the rest of the news. And I know we got. Well, I didn't mean all the news. I I know. I assumed. I assumed you knew how to carve this turkey. (laughs) Yeah. uh, There is one very important press event you attended this week. I did. Can you fill people in about uh, what is this? The the Home Depot Halloween Showcase. Yeah. uh, Greg Miller. uh, Kind of funny. Sent me a message saying, "Hey, their Home Depot is doing a thing. Should I get you on?" Pester the PR person. I was like, yeah, 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 you should. And Home Depot is Jackson Bones' parents, right? They are, yes. And But it was never clear to me. I had not really done the homework, the research on what does that mean? Do they just like work with some, I don't know, a third-party manufacturer that made it? It just like wasn't it a happy accident where it's like they just put stuff up, someone else builds it. Like it was not clear to me what the relationship well, is between Home the Depot and The way things are there. going, Patrick, in five years, we're going to have the origin story for the skeleton and Home Depot's relationship to him I as a major exists. Hollywood picture. Well, that, okay, I wasn't going to say that. That is definitely possible. That might be up the from the producers of Flamin' Hot, <laughs> Flamin Hot Cheetos. <laughs> uh, or, well, yeah, I'd love for it to be <laughs> Christopher from The Bear, but I don't know if that's what I'm like just, the, the, I, I'm a Mexican-American, and nobody ever took skeletons as decoration seriously to honor my heritage until we came up with a big skeleton for Home Depot. I actually think there is an oral history of the the uh, the Home Depot skeleton, which they refer to uh, during the one-hour press conference showcasing the holiday lineup that includes both uh, um, Halloween and Christmas as Skelly. That is the internal nickname for the skeleton it was Beautiful. constantly referred to as skelly um this is a a, a press event uh, f- far and away the b- most bizarre press event i have i have ever been a part of just because it's a world that's that I'm a not, statement i guess it's like a world i'm not at all familiar with did not know that you know i mean it was funny like so the way it worked was i was sent a link to a website that had a video player and a chat uh, thing to the side and what i was doing as the showcase started was just Whoever was in the chat, I would just Google their name to be like, who are like, who else? I know why I'm here, <laughs> but like, why are, and maybe I don't know why I'm here, but I am here. And I, I want to know why you're here as well. And it turned out it was like, I'd Google one name and it was like a person on YouTube that has 50,000 followers. And a lot of what they do is examine Halloween props. That makes sense. I understand why you're here. And I've just managed to smuggle myself into this whole thing. But uh, there was a little chat to the side. Where you could ask questions. And at some point, th- this was muttered aloud. Because the, the stream was, uh, it, at first I thought maybe it was pre-recorded. But no, it was like happening live and they were responding to the chat uh, at different segments. Like, oh, we've got another question from Patrick, who is very active in the chat. And just like deep shame and like oh embarrassment. Yeah, yeah, Home Depot. <laughs> Meet scoops. <laughs> what? Like, more, I, this, look. I don't think most of the people in that chat have a journalism reporting background. A lot of the chat was, hey, that bat looks cool. 
How cool is that bat? And then I'm in there asking, hey, practically speaking, like now that people do the, have these uh, uh, these these outfitted on their yards all year long, does that actually influence the kind of materials that you use to it build them? That's a great question. So, that's, that's a great a fucking question. Good question. And they said, we'll get Patrick, back. your mind. It, didn't, it did not get answered on the stream. My simpler ones, what about like, hey, how, like, how, what, how does height determination work? Like the, the 12, foot, 12, 12 feet is... Like the maximum that they create, some like wingspan stuff like uh, can go a little beyond that, but broadly twelve feet. So how do you work out, you know, the the twelve feet? Like what's big and then what's smaller? And they actually had a good answer for that. That was like actually the twelve feet signifies sort of like the pillar of the lineup. Like hey, this demonstrates thematically what the entire mm-hmm. lineup is about. Mm-hmm. And then there are smaller ones that are not only cheaper to produce, but also maybe don't necessarily have like require the same grand scale. Um, and I'm hoping I am please listeners like uh like hold uh, in a circle like an evangelion let's all say congratulations let's mm-hmm. pray um i did do an interview request because there there is a guy there's a whole team but like there's a guy that is like the main product manager on this that i wasn't sure it was like would an interview even be fun like would it be interesting how much can these how much can any of these people speak to, to what actually is happening here um is this all happening through some third party and they're just here to show you what that third party produces. And it's like, no, like there's a guy who spends all year, like getting in meetings, booking uh, trips for uh, various people at home Depot to like go to Louisiana and like explore the Bayou, looking up cemeteries Fuck and using yeah. that as influence. Like he was talking about like one of the things they've been working on was a five-year pet project of his archway that he'd seen when he was in the catacombs of Paris and the reason they'd never shipped it before because they just could not get the material right because in their tests, it just kept breaking down. And it's like, we're not going to sell you something that's only going to work for like three or four months. It's like, that's fucking fascinating. Like, what a cool job to have. And so the whole thing ended up being like delightful and interesting. And uh, I mean, the lineup itself. Yes, Ren, you have po- you have posted the, bi- the big boy. I don't know. It, this video you have posted says Home Depot Halloween 2023 leaks. I'm wondering where the <laughs> leaks came from. Like, I see... I don't know where they came from, but I was wondering if they were accurate. Is this big bat yeah, skeleton real? There is, yes, there is one that looks very similar to this, who is a, a big bat-like creature that has wings they were talking about in the showcase. Um, someone did ask about uh, the the wings. So the way these, the a lot of their 12-foot objects work are you have a a a base that um like the feet are grounded into and then you're putting stakes into the ground in order to mobilize them keep them steady but then there are also wires that are going from the back so that when wind is introduced they can sway a little bit and it's not going to bend all the different materials inside now granted like once you get up to a certain wind speed like they can't like they're just not meant something that's three hundred dollars is not meant for that uh, but someone asked specifically about, like, hey, it does seem like these wings would be more susceptible to sort of wind damage. And they said yes. And they have been tested up to, like, 25 to 30 miles an hour. They're, like, past that. You cannot really guarantee the quality. I want to put but, like, that thing in a lee. Yeah. yeah. Well, I had d- damage happen to Jackson Bones because he was left out when I was on a, out at a wedding. Uh, and we had winds of 40 to 45 miles an hour. And that ended up messing up some of the cables in his back. I was able to fix them. They would look up some YouTube tutorials uh, and 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 follow that. But yeah, I, I mean, there's yeah. Do you want to do you want to buy a four hundred dollar Jack Skellington this year? Probably I don't. Um, that's a lot of money. 
Uh, is that more Jack- than Skellington was earlier, or is that Ske- about- yeah, ja- yeah? Skelly is three hundred dollars. Like, uh, and then I'm ass- I'm assuming the extra hundred is the Disney license, yeah, right? Yeah, like- yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. branding okay, gotcha. and also the horn tax. It's true because because you because is- you know people are being freaks. You know people are buying that big skeleton man because they're freaks. Um, uh. I will say this: I I legitimately had a conversation with my girlfriend inspired by you, Patrick. Mm, where I was like. Please. Can we get a skeleton and put it on the roof? <laughs> Can we put a skeleton sitting off the edge of the roof of our What of if our, we made out apartment? by the rooftop skeleton? Exactly. Exactly. Listen, I just love the idea of someone walking down the block and looking up at my girlfriend and I's like apartment building and looking up and being like, is that a fucking skeleton on the roof? Because we live on the fourth floor. We have, we're not supposed to have roof access, but we do. And mm-hmm. like, imagine the joy of putting. But my girlfriend made the really good point that like, our landlord would figure it out immediately because like, who else? Like, <laughs> of course, of what course, I, the lesbians. He's looking. He's looking skeleton. at a weirdo chart of his tenants. <laughs> like, wow, that's top. They put the skeleton there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the inter- oh the interior designer and the game designer. Oh, I wonder who put the fucking skeleton on the roof. Uh, this is this is exciting. It's making me realize that uh. Games Workshop needs to stop sleeping on this. The, sorry, the, the archway of skulls made me realize that, like, the time is ripe for a 40K line of, of these. Like, why shouldn't I have a 12-foot Space Marine? Can you imagine the fucking money that they would be able to pull in for selling Warhammer 40K Halloween direction? Sorry, sorry. And then decorations, And then paint kits, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the ultimate model. The ultimate model. God, you could... Oh my god, you would have people creating life-size 40k like battle scenes on there uh, and this is this is the Emperor being slain on Horus' battle barge. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you know, we had to... We're never going to uncover the pool again because, uh, you know, the Emperor now lies in its base. And we filled it with sort of a polystyrene uh, to to be the blood, but yeah, like this is this is my backyard now. Uh, well, you know, we'll see what the HOA has to say about that, Rob. Uh, I'm anxious to to hear the result. I mean, that's the that's the sort of, like they tiptoe. It was so fascinating to listen to them want to acknowledge the use, like what became sort of a viral bit. Like the the original like twelve foot skeleton comes out. And becomes like a viral bit. It's like, oh, look, it's so big. And it has, it does have a really cool and unique look. I have looked at the Costco one. There are all sorts of 12-foot knockoffs. And none of them have this sort of, there's just a simple iconic look that the Home Depot one has that the others do not. And throughout the presentation, they would acknowledge, and we just love the way our fans use it all year long. Without really getting into the implications of encouraging their fan base to use them all year long because it has caused all sorts of funny stories and strife. And the other thing that is really interesting, and I am, I'm sure if I got an interview with them, I don't know how they would answer this, but what I'm fascinated by is part of the existence, like the reason a Home Depot exists, whether it's a Home Depot or a Menards or whatever is your equivalent of, I need a nail or whatever. They have everything and they have a lot of it. You don't, you don't think you go to a store like that and encounter scarcity. The whole point is that they are warehouses for whatever you need to do at your house or property. And throughout this presentation, 
they over and over reinforce the scarcity. Like, hey, he's going on sale on Thursday. They're going to be gone. And like certain ones, they would re- like wink, wink, like we're not making a lot of these. They're going to be gone. And it's just fascinating to watch a company that prides itself on we have tens of thousands of nails. What nail do you need to like? I don't know. The sneaker, the sneaker, like the equivalent of a sneaker drop is coming. Um, and it functions as like a really fascinating bit of public relations for what is otherwise. How do you get people to talk about the Home Depot? That's the whole point. You only read about a place like the Home Depot if they fucked up and a kid stepped on a nail or something like that. Or people looked and up here, where their campaign contributions go. Is that oh, is that a thing? Is that a bad Home, is Home Depot bad? One of the Trumpier uh, ones. Ugh. Regrettably, they are also one of the more efficient organizations. Like around here, you can do Lowe's. You'll wish you'd done the Home Depot. Is the gr- regrettable <laughs> fact? Like, there's a lot of things to like about Lowe's, but uh, but I believe that's also one of those cases where Lowe's gutted a lot of their uh, install and delivery operation to save money, and so where they really declined is an outsourced. Uh, like appliance delivery. Sorry, this is all just homeowner shit and like stuff you learn when you're looking up like, where shall I get this? And you're like, I don't want to go to this organization. And then you realize that has a, that that has other costs associated with it. Well, Rob, just, you know, maybe in a dream someday you could find a place for extended conversations like that. I don't know. I don't know how someone would do that, but like, it does seem like a thing people. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, we can, we, we can, but dream. One can dream. Mm, mm. All right. Well, keeping on the theme of Halloweeny spookies, uh, Patrick, you and I, I think we're both fans of Oxenfree, and we've been playing Oxenfree yeah. Two, which uh, is a different story, but does pick up from a lot of things that came up in Oxenfree. I'm only in the first uh, couple hours. I think you're a bit further along, but yeah, like how have you been? How how have you been finding it? And Remind people of what the night, di- uh, not night dive, uh, night, night, night school, school. Uh, like style adventure is. Yeah, Oxen Free was, uh, without it, I feel like some people might be going back to, like, it's been long enough people are going to be playing that original game for the first time. But like, broadly speaking, it is a supernatural time loop story. Um, and you arrive on this island with a group of friends and experience, work through a, uh, a sort of like supernatural a uh, time time loop story that is just very, very a very striking look. I, I would I struggle to even describe what Oxenfree's art style really is. At frequently, it has its backgrounds and its foregrounds have this painterly look, and then the actual characters have something more akin to claymation. Like there are these very tiny polygonal creatures that um, it's just it's very striking to look at. And also, it was a game that had exceptionally well written dialogue, exceptional voice acting awesome synth soundtrack and just looked cool it was just a real treat of a game that i have exceptionally fond memories of i didn't play the second game from night school that i know is less well yeah that is less well regarded and maybe it helps explain why the game they did after that was uh oxen free 2 did you play night school rob i feel like you did party uh i did after After party Party is fine like i i think there's there are things to like about about after party i think it's also a little bit too i don't know like its sense of humor was going to work for people or not and i think the i think we talked a bit about this on the pod at the time Mm -hmm. night school are really good at writing um 
disaffected teens really in particular or like disaffected young adults that is like that is the voice they are very good at writing in and that worked great for Oxenfree because that is a story about a group of dis- disaffected teens processing a death uh you know in 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 the wake of a, a not not recent but like a recent ish loss and having a lot of things come boiling out of what was supposed to be one last like summer bash and turns into a pretty introspective consideration of their feelings through characters that do not address those feelings very comfortably or very well. And so it works really well from that, st- from that standpoint. After Party, not everyone fits that mold, and so you're more aware of it as a like style as affect, and it gets a little more grating in that game. Now, I do think the thing I like about After Party is also... be it ends up being a story in a lot of ways about like um, cycles of addiction uh, and, and behavior. And so I think like as funny as the game is in places, I think that, you know, it has that bit of sting in the tail that I like oxen free too. Once again, at least at the start, not quite about disaffected young folks uh, though, though they do play a role. And I'm once again, kind of cognizant of the voice of a night school game. Yeah, they have a they have an approach, right? And I, I think if you if if you have vibed with the way their games are written, how their characters are deployed, Oxenfree Two is not breaking the house style, right? Like it is very much feels like it is it is in that wheelhouse for 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 better and for worse, probably um depending on how you react to their the specific style of writing characters. But yeah, they have seemed to have aged up a little bit, which is maybe alongside an aging up of like the folks who work on the game as well these feel like more kind of like disaffected 20 somethings right like who are approaching a part of their yeah yeah, like you kind of like whenever that that period happens for you like that is like where these characters are at like post-college like early made career sort of lost dealing with uh parents they've become detached from like having not fully processed childhood traumas related to parents who were or weren't in their lives or if they were in their lives what role they did or didn't play in the in their lives and that's a lot of what's happening in the sequel which takes place five years after the events of oxen free as far as i like it as far as i i remembered very little of the original game uh and then jumped into the sequel and didn't look up anything about the original because i wanted to see how much of a requirement that was if you just wanted to jump in fresh and at least so far I think I'm roughly halfway through the game. I'm about to put up the fourth transmitter. And when you, if you eventually play the game, that'll sort of make sense as a marker for for what you're doing in the early hours of the game. Uh, I've needed no information about what happened before to enjoy the story that happens here. I don't know if that'll become more complicated as the story goes along and there's potential entanglements because this is a time story and there are timelines and there are dimensions and there are interactions between time and whether I'll lose something as a result of not being fully uh like freshed up on all of those characters and and how everything played out or could play out right oxenfree has multiple ways of ending up uh in the original game depending on some subtle actions that you take from from start to finish um ren you you were uh raising your hand i'm just curious do we know uh what netflix's role is in this production like how close of because like night school is one of like well, they netflix's bought the studio. Stu- right they're one of netflix's like game studios and like i'm really fascinated if like part of this house style is is could be like the product of like a 
hey, Oxenfree was successful. This voice is useful for us. And like a, a I, I would be fascinated to know if that is a like in studio directive or a like publisher directive in terms of like that voice. Um, I, I think it's studio because it's, it's, studio? it's okay, so if you go it. back and look at everything pre Oxenfree. OK, like there's a history like there is a long history of this is the type of they make games where characters walk around and talk a lot. And that's what I like. Oxford was broadly that you don't do a lot in this game. No, I don't mechanically mean mechanically speaking. Sorry, I don't mean mechanically. I mean, like, I mean, in terms of like voice, like oh, written yeah, no, voice. That's true as well, though. Right. Like, yeah. it, it, the yes. tonal thing is this is like kind of how they roll. If you didn't know that Netflix had bought the studio, there's literally nothing here that would such like it seals very much on track with everything that they have produced prior. The only difference here is that if you have a Netflix subscription, you can get the game quote for free, like through their app. You can so see like how this would appeal to Netflix. Cause like night school is very much a man. Wasn't Donnie Darko fucking amazing type, uh, game developer. And Netflix is a man. People love stranger things. They can't get enough stranger things. Yeah. This is why I'm asking. Like this is the Netflix house style now is, is, is to like, Take take a thing, find one version of it that works, and try and reproduce as many copies as you can as quickly as you can before you can run out. And so Netflix being like, damn, Oxenfree did pretty good. Could you do another one of those in the same, like, basic, would feel like a Netflix decision. So I was just curious if it felt, like, in line. But it doesn't with, come along with any, like, I've right. actually been sort yeah. of surprised that it's not like there's an Oxenfree they haven't TV leveraged show. It. No, because it feels, like, I, mean, I was actually genuinely kind of shocked. It's like, look, if you're going to do this. Where's the Stranger I'll, Things Night School game? Well, because well that and or like the Oxenfree absolutely fits a television show. Like it, like it, the way it is written, the characters, like it is, it is so easy to imagine chopping this up into an episodic format and filming it. Like whether that would be good or not, I don't know. But like it's very, it's a very filmable story. And so I've actually been sort of, and this is a conversation we can get to after. I actually had some conversations about Netflix at Summer Games Fest that would track in in this. But to, to loop back around to the game itself. Uh, like you don't do very much in Oxen Free. Um, I don't know if After Party had like was that no. mostly just a walk and talk game as well? Pretty much. I God, I it's been a while. All I remember is the walking and talking. I feel like there may have been something closer to like insult sword fighting in uh like Monkey Island, but it's been yeah. it's been ages. But that's about it, right? Like this is not a game about j- jumping or solving intricate puzzles. Like uh, like at least in the hours I've played, the most intricate puzzle you do in Oxen Free is I have to look at the map and kind of figure out where I could walk next. And like that's and like along the way, the cho- the the choices you're making, like the gameplay, so to speak, uh, is is all the dialogue options that are coming up. Whether it's through the character Jacob, who's this uh, this this guy on the island uh, that you meet up with fairly early, that ends up being sort of your companion character, um, or it's the folks on a radio that you can you can pull up and that you can have. Like the dialogue is the game, the writing is the game, the characters are the game and it, it lives or dies on that on that stuff and I, I i truly did enjoy it in oxen free i haven't gotten far enough in this one to i was like wrote is the wrong word but i haven't found the hook yet in two you know is, is what i will say i think for me the things jumping out right right from the from the first is oxen free gets you in bought in on the characters before it starts any weird shit yeah and here it's the reverse where it's like I don't know who these people are, and they all speak in the slightly affected way, but then we're straight into, ah, the paranormal is happening. And, you know, I love paranormal happenings in, like, 
creepy, dreary Pacific Northwest type country. That's go, listen, awesome. go listen to our three hour podcast about Stranger Things season four. Yeah. Uh, uh, we think this is bad and we loved every mm, minute. Yum, of yum, it. Yum, yum. <laughs> but I think the thing that is missing here is that like Oxenfree gets you bought in on, oh, these are kids, some kids with like some real shit on their mind and real stakes in their relationships. And here it's like, you want to do this bullshit job? Oh no, the bullshit job turns out to be dealing with like dimensional rifts and uh, your weird conspiracy th- conspiracy theory, uh, like Stoner Buddy, is the guy who like has all the secrets, but you don't really know each other very well either. And so like I'm kind of going around like setting up transmitters and dealing with like weird little time loops. But the thing I'm missing is like, you know, the character you play is like Riley. And I don't have a great connection to Riley. Like, like feels like a bit of a cipher. And the problem is that I'm also supposed to be kind of role playing her through conversational choices. But a lot of times, unlike in Oxenfree, where I had a strong feeling about like, how do I want this conversation to go from where things are from where things are at here? Conversational prompts come up and I'm like, I don't really know what I want to say here. And I also have no feeling about what which of these is like uh, compatible with my conception of Riley because I don't really have one yet. So. Yeah, like I think. Have you gotten into any of the backstory with her father, or is no. that still? So that's. I mean, that I think that's part of the issue, and I, I'm hoping that the game will. You know, I feel like I'm halfway through, and will like be stronger in, in in the back half where you essentially have filled up more of that character sheet, so that you can start making some of those choices. Because the role playing aspect, while you're not playing fundamentally different characters based on your choices, it's more in the telltale model of like degrees of character and and style um although there are instances like what amounts to like some of the most choice you get in the game in like the capital c sense is uh like for example there is a situation where there's someone else on the island they're kind of set up as some of these this kind of like villain faction you corner one of them and the the, the stoner character you're with jacob is so angry at them that they appear on the verge of actually physically assaulting them And the game is setting up where you can intervene or not intervene. And I let it go for a while because I think that fucking punk deserved to at least feel scared um, and then intervened. And the game then comments on that, like in like the 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 hour afterwards. And my guess is that is something where I didn't have to intervene at all. It did not. It seemed like that was a meter that was going to run out if I let the dialogue continue. And I'll be curious. It seems like the game is hanging its hat on a couple of those sequences to then influence uh, a lot of the broader character beats. But I'm with you, Rob, that I feel, I feel like I wish I knew more about these characters from the jump because it actually just made connecting with them makes connecting with them difficult because it's been, so Oxenfree comes out in 2016. It's, it's been more than six years since that original game came out, which does not feel, and this game comes out like, like around the time like like waypoint is starting i don't have a connection to that world anymore and so i actually wish this game did more building of itself early on whereas it feels like a lot of that's going to happen at the end like maybe i'm going to meet a bunch of the characters from the first game and that's supposed to be like aha rewarding and like i don't know it's just, that's a long time to not do some set like world building for the player for a game that is that far disconnected from the original game um and I that that contributes to a sense of disconnect that I have in the world, even though fundamentally I like what I'm doing, but I don't know. I, I found the original to be 
far more charming, interesting, and engaging. And it's not so much that the sequel is just coasting off that. I just think I'm I'm with you in this in the broader sense that I wish it did more foundational work to make me interested in the space that I'm in, why this space matters, and why these especially Riley, right? Like it makes sense that Jacob, you're gonna meet him. Why don't I would you can unspool him as a character as we go along. But Riley, like the stuff with her father is like super important to the character. And the fact that you can get a couple hours in without getting a sense of that, I feel like is maybe a mismanagement of the character backgrounding to, to make the player feel more empowered and invested. Yeah. And oxygen free, like the characters all have backgrounds with each other. They're surrounded by people who share frames of reference. And so you get a lot of this where it's, it, you're able to infer it and it's a lot clunkier as she and Jacob, like don't know each other. And so it's just kind of them talking to each other about some of this stuff. And yeah, it's, it, it is a, it is a less, less successful uh, onboarding for sure. The atmosphere is still quite good. Uh, though I, I do kind of come away feeling like I preferred how the characters looked in the first game, it looked more consistent with the background art. Whereas mm. here, there is both too much face and not enough uh, happening with some of these <laughs> characters uh, in a way that's like not sitting uh, s- sitting easily. Um, but yeah, like I'm I'm gonna stick with it. I, I I enjoy the vibe of of the game, but it is not immediately grabbing me the way that like Oxenfree did. Um, but you know, we will, we will check back on it, uh, probably, you know, next week and see if, see if where we've landed has, has taken us to a different, different place with it. Uh, uh the, well, the one thing I want to note just before we move on is just yeah. to, to note some of the conversations I had at summer games fest, because as Ren pointed out, this is an, essentially a Netflix production now. And the question I asked a couple of people, some people who had had gone to work at Netflix and are there now. And then some other people who know lots of people that have worked there because Netflix is in like a strong, uh, the vibe I got was like spending a lot of money to get interesting talent, like a lot of money. And the question I kept posing to all of them was, why is this any different than Amazon or and like, it's so difficult. It's so easy to get attracted by the shiny object that is video games and so difficult to stick with it to actually produce those things. And I could not get a particularly clear answer, even from the people who were obviously drinking the Kool-Aid, like both in a like I work here and I believe in the talent and I believe in the mission. I was like, yeah, but you're in that one, two year, three year honeymoon. Like if Netflix subscribers start to crater for some reason, three or four years from now, like you don't think the first thing that's going to go are like these fancy expensive video game productions that take a long time and make a lot of their money up front and are being pitched as a value add to Netflix as opposed to a core tenant. It was just, it was, it was interesting because, and these are folks that have worked at other places, right? Have worked at an Amazon, have worked at a Microsoft, like have worked at places that have tried a Google and have like tried to get themselves in there. The way they pitched it to me was like, they really do. They claim their arguments. They really do believe in the games and think they're like going to be fundamental to what the company is doing forward to some important degree. I don't know that I believe them, but that is, that is what people were telling me that were like close enough to actually speak to it. Um, and I, I will be curious to see what that actually pans out to going forward, because it is, as we pointed out here in this conversation, odd, odd or encouraging, right? Like in, in some level is what we wanted. Like, Hey, like oxen free Two rolls out alongside an oxen free animated short anime alongside an oxen free 
like six part limited series on Netflix. Like I don't know. Like maybe it's just they're paying a bunch of pounds of people to make the games they want to make, and that could be enough. But anyway, I thought it was curious. Yeah. Uh. So, Ren, I know that you talked a little bit about this last week, and I'm curious to check in on it. Uh, you've been playing Tyranny, which is Obsidian's uh, RPG that takes place after the bad guys win, like the epic that you don't see, and you're taking place in the the world that follows. Uh, and one of the things I've I've been curious about when when I when I hear about that, that's always that's always been an arresting pitch, right? Is that effectively you're kind of stationed as what, like a, a bureaucrat within an evil empire? Mm, bureaucrat would be th- you're a judiciary. Uh, you actually have a, a, a shocking amount of power. Uh, effectively, you are an agent of, there are these characters in the world who have like magical powers. If you are like able, if you are so good at magic that people can like pull on you for power, which is a thing that people can do in this world, then you are called like an archon effectively. Uh, and like a whole new magical school sometimes emerges after an archon does because people are like, how do we learn this magic? So like, it's important, right? You are the fate binder uh, assigned to the archon of justice. Uh, tune on. And so basically your job is to go to the first act of the game. You go to this place uh, where there's an ongoing uh, campaign by two different armies uh, of the Empire. The Disfavored, who are basically the elite troops. They are the, like, special ops units. Uh, they take no prisoners. They uh, only recruit, like, the best soldiers. Uh, and then the other faction that is currently trying to take this area is called the Scarlet Chorus. Uh, the Scarlet Chorus is run by the Archon of Secrets, as opposed to the Archon of War, who runs the Disfavored. The Scarlet Chorus is basically a... Think like, think like what Rome was actually like in terms of like going into a town, completely like raising it to the ground and then like offering clemency to the people who uh, survive that process. And basically like we'll bring anyone into this army. The, the way that this army works is we bring literally everyone in. And if they survive, if they die, they're cannon fodder. Who cares if they survive? They become like huge fucking freaks. Uh, and so those are like the two like branches of this empire. They're fighting over the they're fighting to take this territory. And then the emperor Kairos uh, gives an edict and an edict is basically a magical law uh, where if the armies cannot successfully take this position in eight days, then everyone in the valley will be burned to death. Uh, edicts are a big deal in this world. Um and your character reads an e- reads the edict, and to read an edict is sometimes to do such powerful magic that even reading it kills you. Uh, and so you're like your character is like special for being able to like read an edict. Uh, and then the first act ends with you successfully taking that hill. Congratulations! The edict is free. You're free of the edict. One problem: those two uh, parts of the empire are now at war with each other because of an argument over tactics and like how they should be taking this hill because like how they take this hill does have lethal consequences if they don't take this hill in eight days everyone including the archons is dead uh and so it leads to this like boiling over of conflict and so then the second and third acts of the game are about navigating an ongoing war between two factions within your own empire uh, as a like third party imperial judiciary who's like interfacing with the 
uh, generals of both armies uh, trying to determine who has legal right uh, in this situation um, to be like moving through this space. I'm curious, what's the vibe around like, is the portrayal here that like the empire broadly follows a steel sharpened steel type type approach where it's good that the constituent parts will occasionally just brawl. So that's actually a a theory for why the game ends the way it does is that it is, um, uh, basically it's the idea that empire has to break itself to build itself back better. That is what your character is being used to do. This edict, uh, that you're like being sent on like it, the game has the vibes of like, oh, this empire is run by someone who understands how empire works and has to, like, break itself to, like, recombine into something stronger. Um, that It feels like that is what your role is here. Uh, you are expected to, like, force these factions into conflict with one another. And then, like, the question becomes, because you are, like, this person who has read an edict, like, who leaves on top of this? Is it, fact- is it the disfavored? Is it the Scarlet Chorus? Or is it you? Is it you, like, creating a new center of power in this world with, like, to some degree, the consent of the Emperor? Um, Can you, like, ascend to becoming a new Archon uh, in the middle of this, like, conflict? And, like, the cool thing about it is that the game has then become about, like, after you get through this, like, first opening conflict, it then becomes a game about resolving edicts um, and, like, resolving these, like, long-form, like, legal, magical uh, doctrines. So, like, another example is, like, the Edict of Storms, uh, which was an edict that basically said a massive supernatural storm, like sandstorm, would ravage an entire region of the world until every last member of this nobility was dead. And there's one dude left. But the problem is, he's inside the storm, so the armies can't get to him anymore. And so, like, this conflict is not just between your art, like, these two warring armies and this guy. It's also his former peasantry who have now, like, armed themselves because they just want this fucking storm to be over. And so you have this old, like, military unit that has, like, basically been like, we have to get in there to kill our old boss so we can just end this fucking edict. Um, And so the game becomes about, like, how do we end, how do you go about ending an edict, right? How do you, like, get these legal, how do you convince this magical system to accept your legal definition um, of like what, how the world works and like the ways in which the emperor's edicts begin to like counteract their own like end goals, right? Like the purpose of the edict of storms was to run this nobility into the ground. The edict of storms, because it could not actually be completed has now become the shield with which like the final shield with which that nobility can protect itself. Um, And like, that's sick as fuck. That's really that's cool. That's so, that's right. Now I'm curious, you know, everything you're describing here, it, it sounds like an awesome fantasy story. And like the things you're intervening in sounds incredible. And also it does not seem like it would lend itself to now form your party and journey forth. And I'm curious and, and, and fight and, and you must kill 10 goblins or something like that. And I'm curious <laughs> Are there moments where it's like, all right, we got to do the RPG stuff you expect? Or is it just fully leaning into this is a crunchy uh, yeah. like piece of interactive fiction in a lot of ways? I, I think it's clo- like you're doing RPG stuff, but it's never like go to kill 10 rats. It's always like go take this village. 
Like, like, like the, the, this game's version of the Go Till Kill 10 Rats quest is like a millet, a general being like, okay, cool. This village, like we've been stuck in this village for days. They have like, we don't know how to break this. We're sending y'all in. Because the other thing is that like, you are like a competent fighter. Uh, and the reason you got your position was by be- doing some like pretty smart military maneuvers. And so these generals who are also severely understaffed are like trusting you with like some military actions. Um, but also all of these military actions still resolve, revolve around the application of imperial law, right? Like you are applying imperial law by doing these military actions. And so you get to like, have like pretty significant say over what happens at the end because you are doing like a judicial action. Um, which I think is really neat. The other cool thing about this game is that it like is, is very much about like, how do you work with an empire to like try and carve out legally how do you try and carve out like mercy for different characters in this world and like can you find the legal argument that gets you through this um and like that is even happening on the like most basic like go to this town and take it quests there is always someone there where it's like okay can i make a legal deal to not have to kill everyone here uh in exchange for like using this like one clause uh it's really cool the rap i've heard on this is that like this is supposed to be the foundation for a series uh, in, in some ways, or at least there's supposed to be more tyranny than there is. And it just kind of like ends and yeah. fizzles. And I'm curious, like, do you feel the journey has been worth it? Even if like the ending is, is a bit of a damp squib so far, it's great. Like I'm, I'm loving it. And like the other thing that's worth noting is that you're right. The game is like not finished uh, in, in a lot of ways. There were not companion quests on release. They ran out of budget. For, like the companion quests and they had to be released as like a second dlc uh that the companion quests were released as dlc which like really pissed a lot of people off and like kind of mired the game's reputation among crpg fans because it's like oh like essential content was locked behind dlc that is like considered like genre standard um but no tyranny is very much like it comes from an era of obsidian rpgs where like Pillars of Eternity, Tyranny, and Pillars of Eternity 2 are some of the best CRPGs ever made. They're also fundamentally incomplete. Like, all of them are. And, like, in like to, like, varying degrees, uh, Pillars of Eternity is probably the most incomplete of them all, uh, with, with Tyranny being, like, a close second. Um, and so it's, like, it's fascinating to see this game and how much potential it has, while also knowing that, like, it is really gonna have to... It is, it is so technically excellent that I can look past, like, the things at its, and in its structure that I'm, like, not a huge fan of. Um, the game's reputation system is also super sick. Um, characters have a love and fear meter, effectively, uh, because this is a game so about true. how empires do power. And so characters are, like, basically, you are told how much they uh, like you and also how terrified they are of you. Um, and there are different like bonuses you get for each of them. There are some characters who I have almost a maximum like like and fear bonus with because like that's how I would be. I mean, Vice HR if they they, they could have taken some lessons from this, frankly, mm-hmm. you know, just at the end of the year, look around your colleagues and just like <laughs> or fear yeah, or fear one yeah. to ten. <laughs> Oh fuck! I just got wrath with Rob. I just got two <laughs> wrath points for my for my chaotic and disorderly ways. 
I don't think Vice HR, unfortunately, or anyone in, in the leadership circle scored very highly on like or fear. It was like we <laughs> we fear your incompetence, but that is a rather rather different thing than what Lockheed Valley is describing. I will say the game does does use that. Like if you fuck up a lot, people will be like, "Damn, I don't oh, no. anywhere near that me." Is very funny. <laughs> it's it, it is funny because like. Characters will be like, yeah, I think you just did a bad job. Oh my god, job. Like your fascist Amelia <laughs> Bedelia. And like, I'm doing my best. Oh no! No, exactly. It's it's also like the companions are really, really engaging. Um, these are characters who are like big freaks. And it makes me a bit sad that their companion quests apparently weren't very good. Um, because like, these are some really fascinating characters. Like one of the first, like, the first four companions you get are a member of the Scarlet Chorus, uh, who is a woman who steals the fighting styles of people who she fights alongside because she kind of, like, embodies the memory of their brain. Like, her, her like, former, like, uh, squad died with her, and she learned all of their fighting styles by learning their souls. Uh, and she does not like that. Let me be clear. She's like, I love killing. I love murder so much. This is a woman who's obsessed with murder, but, like, takes, like, great personal discomfort in the idea that she's like violating the sanctity of another person's Ooh, like, like heart. killer heiress mourn yes le- yes no like literally killer heiress mourn and that she's like man i think this part may be fucked up like i love to flay a guy but i think that like it's fine to flay a dude but to like to suck cross his a line out and like take mm-hmm. in, in prison some shard of the individual within yourself yeah. feels icky would have just preferred right. to kill him Right, exactly. And, like, that's such a cool premise for a character. It's, like, a lady who sucks, but it's, like, dealing with what would be, like, a horrifying experience for anyone. And the ways in which, like, she tries to find comfort in her violence and can't anymore. And, like, that's such a good, good fucking shit. character This in sounds a video so much game. like, um... Yeah, this sounds like a RPG adaptation of, like, the First Law series in some ways. You're familiar with that. Uh, like... Joe Abercrombie wrote this like grim dark fantasy series called the First Law Trilogy, and it follows like so it's a grim dark version of like classic fantasy series where like wizened mage figure taking a band of sort of like misfitting hero heroes or heroes to be on an adventure to put the world right, and the big twist is like. Uh Oh, there's a different agenda being serviced the entire way. And the rest of that universe, there's more novels in that universe. But the the fatalistic part of it is that everyone is kind of like in a cosmic trap in that universe where it's like, oh, there's just never there's going to be a lot of things where we think we have political will, political freedom. But all of it is going to be in the service of this broader, like puppeteered situation we, we found ourselves in. And it ends up in really interesting places because you still have really compelling stories about people knowing that they are trapped in that system or knowing that they are operating within a framework where it's like, you can't put this world right, but you can do things in it and you can make some things better. Or at least you can settle some scores that need to be settled. <laughs> right. Like, uh, you know, and, and those moments are like the best moments in the game for me is when I'm like trying to be like, okay, how do I make this situation as tolerable as possible? Right. Like I have had to argue with enemy commanders to be like, listen, no one else is watching us right now. Tell all the villagers to get the fuck out of here. I'm going to kill you and your friends. We're going to fight. 
but you were going to tell everyone else in this town to get out now. And like that moment is like such a, that's so sick. And there's like so many things like that where it's like, okay, the alternative is like, okay, your commander is going to give up everyone else. Get the fuck out. I have given someone that offer before. And he was like, okay, deal. I I will, I will take that deal. And it's, it's really sick. Um, it's really cool also to see like the choices, the choices play out in cool ways. That sounds, that sounds really fun. That, that is a, that is a great sales pitch. And like, I've always sort of thought the tyranny sounded, sounded kind of cool to get into. Was always put off by the fact that, you know, it's not, it doesn't seem like it's ever going to get picked up again. Uh, but, but what a cool conceit. And also like Rob, how do you feel about real time with pause combat? And, uh, yeah, I'm not, I don't. I tend not to love it, but I don't hate it. It has one of the best real time with pause systems I've ever encountered. It's like okay. it's 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 really good. The it game's resists spell creation the jumble that real time, real pausable time tends to descend into in a lot of uh, a lot of games. When was the last time you played a real time with pause game? <sighs> I feel like anyway, Aliens is is an example. I played a few. Uh, like but pausable uh continuous time is something i've i've tended to work with a lot yeah auto pause is really good they, okay. they've gotten really good at like auto pause systems and like giving you a lot of fine-tuned control where it's like i have it set so that every time someone finishes an ability the game pauses and i can like check in and like oh, nice. decide yeah um and i've been playing on my steam deck yeah yeah works real good, it feels on, steam good on steam deck yeah it works it works totally fine it works totally fine um but yeah i think i like barrack that's a yeah. fun character a man who was caught in the edict of storms and had his body so ravaged that they had to fuse him into his armor that sounds pretty metal and now he has to petition the government to free him of the armor because the emperor refuses to fucking do it it's right. so good ah video games yeah that sounds that sounds like that sounds like really good shit uh definitely something worth uh you know, worth picking up. Uh, I guess I'll check in on it briefly. I think Kato may have played a bit of it and might have more to say when they come back. I have been playing a lot of Aliens Dark Descent, which is a Aliens Squad tactics game, effectively, with continuous, not pausable, but slowable time. Uh, but the the thing that it is really, like Patrick and I streamed a bit of it the other day, uh, it is a really good squad tactics version of aliens in in a lot of ways and it hits it hits all the beats right like it is evoking specifically aliens the feeling of the marines and ripley coming to the uh you know settlement and realizing like everyone's missing what's happened here and discovering to their dismay that like there's an alien hive there you know all this going in, but there's something fun about watching characters just hit those beats. Same thing as Alien Isolation, right? Where it's like, do you know what's going on? Hell yeah, of course you do. You've seen Alien. The whole game is premised on, like, you like Alien, right? And we do, and we love seeing Alien <laughs> shit happen to people. And Alien Stark Descent really nails the vibe of Alien shit is happening to a squad of infantry uh, that, that you control. I think the, the thing that I really dig is... In addition to it just being like a, a, a cool looking game, the, the, the campaign structure is once you get past the tutorials, 
each mission area is like a pretty large uh, space that you can explore in any order, do objectives almost in any order. Some there's some that are like gates to unlock different parts of the level. But like the first level, for instance, is very much a if you just want to start exploring this this base, you could and you'd find a bunch of stuff in there, and you along the way you you complete a lot of objectives. I mean, I, I to the point where we, when we were doing it, I when you I only did I'd have no context for the map. When I'm watching, I'm watching Rob play this for the first time, and then you leave the area, and all of a sudden it clicks for me that, oh, what I saw was not the one area you were in. Those places within it are part of this larger structure that you, it sort of takes, you are in kind of a, that hub area is too grandiose, but it is a large map with sub-objectives in between that aren't just as perfunctory as like go to this room to that room within a structure like they they do feel like set up to give you breathers in between as you're figuring out how long can i survive with this one squad before i need to retire them and bring in the bring in the next set this is the thing i was really curious about like rob does it feel kind of like in terms of area scale is it almost like a version of xcom that's like real time but also every map is that final map or is that final string of maps where it's like, okay, we're going to have to go from area to area to area as you go through like this massive, like final mission. Does that, does, is, is that the vibe? It's a bit, but I think the thing that is really different is that this is a game about exploration. XCOM is a game about like go and, and beat ass, go win the, win the objective. This is very much a, there will be objectives. You got to go take fights, but really what you're here to do is figure out where's that, where's that pesky key card. Where's that terminal that controls the things? And so you might end up scouring tons of the map trying to figure out, like, where is the, like, terminal that's going to let us unlock the next objective? Oh, it's not in this building. This building looked it. And, and the buildings have just enough character where it's like, okay, this building feels like it has an administrative function. This building feels like a, uh, like, you know, engineering space and such. So you end up you end up doing a lot of a lot of exploration in those spaces uh and along the way you start encountering a lot of resistance now the thing is in XCOM once you land once you deploy you got to you got to win that mission or you can retreat and take a penalty the difference here is retreating is part of it you are expected to retreat and you can send a squad to that same mission area a day later to pick up from where you left off and the idea here is that fundamentally this is a press your luck game because the longer your guys stay in there, the more bad shit happens to them. And that is like they get wounded in fights with aliens, which means they're more vulnerable. That's the most obvious thing. But the thing this game really leans into is the notion that uh, fighting aliens is scary and like messes you up. And so, uh, what the characters have, in addition to your, your your standard resources, like command points, which let you do special abilities, ammunition, pretty important, med kits, all this stuff is important. But one of the real resources that you, you can't easily replenish is, uh, like, uh, stress. Like, you start with zero stress, but once you hit, like, 100 points of stress, you tick up into, like, levels of trauma. And each time you sort of cross the threshold, more debuffs are applied to your character that are just like present for the missions. So the most obvious one is after your character, after a character has like fought aliens a bunch of times, they might have developed a thing where they're like just, they're just unsteady now. And they're not hurt, 
they're just scared and they don't shoot as well. They're less efficient at firing, firing their weapon. And so without drawing attention to it, that Marine's going to do less damage and they're going to consume more ammo to do less damage. And so now your squad's less effective. Maybe this is a moment to retreat back to your transport and say, let's go, let's get out. So I guess I posted a screenshot in our chat and I have like a question. So it's someone like cutting open a door. Um, Yeah. Are the things you're doing in this game just, does it feel like you're just moving characters around from objective to objective, having one of them set up to like cut the thing open and then everyone else like stand around to defend them? Or does it feel like, does that feel like you're just doing objectives in like a squad based tactics game? Or does it feel like there's like something, does it feel like you're exploring a space mechanically in that way where it's like, there's something to do other than shooting because like, I think maybe this is just because I have a closer relationship to alien than I do aliens is that like, I am fascinated by the non-combat things that you have to do when dealing with a xenomorph or like the alien threat. And like, I'm wondering if those feel like they're like hitting here or not. So I think yes and no, I think there would be things here that like, I'll be very clear. This is alien, not alien. And right. so this falls into the, do you like how the, how the Marines talk in aliens? Cause you're going to hear it a lot here and there's going to be a lot of barks like five by five and, uh, you shall not pass fuckers as, as guys are welding a door shut. Uh, crucially by the way. So in this case, yeah, they're, they're breaching, they're breaching a door to enter a defended location. But a lot of times what you were doing is, to monitor that stress, to uh, pay, like to to dump it. So in the screenshot, you've got a lot of people are at like twenty percent stress. Not something you'd worry about at this point in the mission. But later on, as as you're like in danger of ticking over that one hundred point threshold, where you're going to start getting debuffs and your squad is less effective, what you can do is you can find like rooms you can defend and basically like weld the doors shut and hit like take a rest. That dumps all the stress off your troops and gives them a chance to heal up a little bit. And you can resume your exploration. Now, crucially, that only reduces, like, your progress to the next level of trauma reduces to zero at that point. But if you had already taken steps up that ladder where you have debuffs applied, resting is not going to remove them. Those are, those are permanent for the mission until you, until you evacuate. So effectively, you're, like, buying yourself more time on the timer before you hit the next level of stress. But the thing you can't do is go into a closet, weld it shut and be like, all right, we are good to go the way we were at the start of the mission. Uh, But in terms of like, does it feel like it does feel like there's a lot of exploration happening here. There is a lot of, this is the key thing uh, actually run in, in that screenshot you've in the upper right, you've got the detected infinite, Ooh, detected infinite onslaught is there on that screenshot. That's not good. So, the crucial thing is, under normal circumstances, when a mission starts, you are undetected. Which means there, there might be aliens wandering the map, but they don't know you're there. And so you're exploring. And if you see the alien, but it doesn't see you, you don't want to shoot that alien. Because the minute you do, uh, what you are going to get is you're going to trigger a hunt. The, the, the hive is going to know you're there. And it will begin sending through the various spawn locations in the world more aliens trying to find where your squad is. They will go to your last known position and begin patrolling from there. So if you get caught in a fight, you want to wrap it quickly and then leave so that 
the hunters can't find you because once they find you again, the the hunt timer stays, and also you start getting things like onslaughts or major like major monsters entering the entering the battlefield, and so. I don't know. It's like a little bit less exploration, though. There, there's a lot of that because you're you're always trying to hunt for resources and like you know, uh, various clues in the game. But the big part of it is so much of this game is about don't be seen, don't be spotted by the alien. The best thing you can do is not be seen in this. The less your marines fight, the better it is because every time they fight, they start getting scared. Every time they fight, they draw more enemies to them, and so you have a lot of like delicious tension in this game that is very that is very alien. Once the shots start flying, it's aliens all the way, baby. It's like, put that sentry gun down. You know, the little like, uh, like zippery sound of the smart guns and such. All that is, is classic aliens. It's all there. It's good times. I like this shit. Nice. And it it goes bad really quickly, right? So I walk on the stream. Rob did the kind of end of this tutorial and then the opening area that has a bunch of you tracking down various folks on what was their city dead hills dead hills yeah you know just where my a a nice a nice quaint retirement community just you know working for the corp and also you know living out your last years uh here at dead hills and you like the really the first encounter you had like the first non-scripted encounter you had with an alien didn't, you didn't mean to bumble, bungle into them. Like, they just sort of came line of sight, and there was just no way that you were going to... Like, it has this nice sort of uh, line of sight that happens between you and the creature, and then as that fills, you can't escape that line of sight, but it fills quickly, and Rob was not able to. And as soon as that one, the, the quote, hive, or basically, like, every instance alien that is on the map then starts heading towards you, or at least within a certain vicinity that you can't quite see visualized, but it's anything that's, like, within kind of spitting distance is going to come after you. And that went wrong pretty fast. Not wrong, but uh, it got hairy extremely fast in a way that I found a little surprising for a game that this was the first encounter in the first mission. Important context, Rob is playing on slightly above the normal difficulty, and so I think that helps explain a little bit of what happened there. But nonetheless, it is a game where, you know, like, yes, there's slowdown and there's stoppage of time, but also, these aliens are vicious, and like the knock-on effects they have, if you don't line up like a shotgun blast or have a sentry gun ready to go, which you did not have access to yet at that point in the game, I mean, it, it, all of a sudden, you, your, your people are a little bit fried within what was all maybe 90 seconds of total game time. Well, and especially the thing you saw, the thing that made it really go bad is, uh, you know, if, as sort of, the, this is sort of the thing that happens in aliens too, right? If the aliens just coming at the Marines down a hallway, Marines have a pretty good chance. You know, they're all just downrange. You open fire on them. Cool. The aliens are coming from two directions or three. And now you're firing in every direction and you're surrounded and you can't sort of keep enemies at bay through, like through a perimeter. The myth, the aliens are in, in on you. They, they're in your formation. You know, that is the proverbial game over, man. Like they are they are in there, they're they're whipping their tails, so your guys are getting stunned, your guys are getting knocked. And so like once the formation disintegrates, it can go from like this encounter this encounter is under perfect control, nothing to, nothing to sweat here, to oh, we're just done. Like if we if we survive this fight, we're gonna have to get out of this level as quickly as possible and just get to the There's transport no saves coming. Because we're done. Right. Like that, that is also important. Like the game is a checkpoint system that 
is, is either triggered by objectives or quote resting, which yeah. when you, which happens when you barricade yourself into a to a room which requires you doing all the doors. If it's one door, great, that triggers a rest. If it's two doors, you have to use two engineering points to accomplish that. But I, I feel like that is I thought I, I was not surprised, but like I think it's like at least notable that it's not a game that you're like f sixing your way through uh and, and the way that you can with an XCOM. like yeah you 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 mentioned in the stream that there were moments in your normal playthrough where like hey this <laughs> like the the uh the knock-on effect of like one bad mistake got so dire that you retreated back to a previous checkpoint much earlier but it's not, autosave yeah but it's not something that you're doing like hey from 90 seconds ago i'm gonna go left instead of right and try and avoid the mess that happened the game at least if you're gonna go if you're gonna retreat to a checkpoint it's gonna make it hurt a little bit from a time management perspective which i think is a that's a design choice that is not just like a functionality choice that is a design choice to sort of use time as a means of punishing you for not just living with the consequences of the actions that play out Mm -hmm. one of the questions i had is that like you know this feels like a game in which like characters would like take on like long-term stress does this trauma only last for the mission uh no so it's stuck with that okay do characters have relationships because like have you ever seen a gun someone turn a gun on someone else like that's the thing that i would be looking for from this is the moment where someone's holed up in a room they've barricaded the doors an alien is coming and then one person freaks and pulls the trigger on their friend no that doesn't happen though the game has warned me a lot about flamethrowers uh and their (laughs) propensity to friendly fire so maybe there are like if a character there are there are status effects where a character can go like go berserk where I think they begin like sort of spraying and praying, but I don't think gunfire is tracked for friendly fire purposes. But it does mm. seem the game implies pretty heavily that like uh, flamethrowers are, for instance. Uh, but the the bigger thing is like things that are implied is like if a character becomes totally like blackpilled, for instance, and is like we're just dead, we're just we're gonna get, we're gonna get fucking killed. They're just they're we're gonna die on this mission. The next time you deploy them, they'll still be doing that. Now you won't hear that through barks, unfortunately, but you will you will see the status effect that them just being around the other characters is bad vibes. And everyone is getting more stress from them being around. And so that character now might be a really good fighter, but every second the you know, the rest of your squad spends in their presence, they're just taking psychic damage. Right. Uh from from being around this character. Uh, one of the really cruel status effects is like a xenophobia, which is that like every time an alien is even within, within sight of a character, they start taking heightened stress damage. So every fight is hitting them worse because they're getting like stacks of that phobia on them or even fights you avoid. They're, they're more freaked out. Uh, now the, where this all comes in is so, you know, you can heal physical injuries, uh, but when characters go back out, you know, they start with pretty, they might start with like really severe trauma levels. And so from the beginning of the mission, you have two stacks of negative debuffs uh, on you and you're just, you're just stuck with that. The game does give you an out on this front, which is at a certain point in the campaign, you go into the med bay and the therapy room is open. And you can effectively send troops into the therapy room to have the stuff removed. But this is like where the game is really nicely constructed. Uh, Every day of the campaign, the infestation level of the planet increases. There are tiers. 
And so you kind of want to be running missions every day and progressing through the campaign because, like, if you take your time getting to a mission, by the time you get to it, infestation level might be, like, high, at which point the mission's just by default harder. There's going to be, like, you know, the hunts are going to be more serious from the start. There's going to be more aliens around. So it's just going to be harder. So you don't want to, like, wait too long to do stuff. And healing from injuries and therapy stuff is all measured in a period of, like, four, five, six days. That can be, like, the length of time it takes to move up an entire, like, infestation level on the planet. So if your best troops are, like, psychologically shot, you can fix them. You can be like, go sit in the therapy room until you're all good from that trauma, bro. You can do that, but do you have the eight days required for them to get their heads right? Or are you maybe just going to want to be like, well, you're only a little uh, like combat fatigued. <laughs> you're, you know, you got, you got that good PTSD where you got that little fun edge, little mm-hmm. zip, zip in your step. Listen, y'all, we know everyone hates fighting alongside bad vibes, Eric, but we just don't have time. He's, you know what? He's not hurt that bad, and I know he sucks, but, like, we don't have time to send bad vibes, Eric, to, like, get CBT. Like, I... I, I <laughs> Look, he does the headshots. I'm sorry, we just have to... You're gonna, like, can you work the scope as well as he can? No, then... or. Maybe it's the opposite situation where Eric's too good at CPT yeah. and he just won't shut the fuck up about cognitive distortions <laughs> during missions. And it's like, man, it's not a cognitive distortion. They're a face hugger killed Jeff like <laughs> six minutes ago, dude. Like, mm, I can't. Sounds like you're catastrophizing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, so like, but that's a really, like, that is a part of the system I love, which is that the thing that does incentivize you pushing a mission too deep, where you're like, this squad's getting pretty rough. We're low on resources. Everyone's freaked out. But if we go back to the transport, we got to come back here, and that's another day. And I'm not going to have this squad on deck for several days, probably, because I'm trying to get them back to back to normal. And so you end up, at a certain point, being like, I'll just keep pushing these guys. Because if we can get out of here, we can move to the next mission before the planet infestation gets worse. Also, just check. We can all agree that Ellen Ripley has the bad vibes debuff, right? At the beginning of Aliens, she definitely has the bad vibes Does. debuff. <laughs> yeah, you know. But she's so right is the problem. Like, are they bad vibes when, like, it is legitimately just like I am objectively correct about the situation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, we fe- Rob, we've stumbled into the core fault of CBT. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yes. Uh, that is that is very true, but anyway. So yeah, it's a it's it's been a blast. I think you know when Kyle gets back, if they play a bit more, I think it's it'd be fun to check in on see how the campaign unfolds. We can talk about classes a little bit because uh, you know there's there's some fun, but like stuff you'd expect uh, regarding like class divisions. I think that's that stuff could be maybe a you know it's 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 additive. It, it definitely makes the tactics a little more interesting, but. Uh, I wouldn't say it's like I think for me the most the most inventive part of this is the the time where the campaign is on and the push your luck aspects like interfacing really really well. Uh, but the main thing is it's just a lot of fun. Like this has been an unexpectedly like delightful game that I've been playing the last week or so. Um, and this wasn't you know I, like I kind of I'm a sucker for alien stuff, so it was on my radar, but I didn't actually expect it to be that that good. And here I am. Start thinking like, 
this is some good alien shit. If I can't get Alien Isolation 2, I'll take this. This is nice. This is fun. So, uh, you know, there's, there, there's, there's my endorsement for Aliens Dark Descent. Uh, we're a little long on time. I think we should probably just call it here. Uh, we can tuck, tuck into the mailbag uh, next week. Uh, this episode, like every episode this week, uh, was produced by Michael Hermes with Kato on Vacation. The theme song is Moments Pause by Two Mellow. You can check out their work on twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can follow everything we do at Remap Radio on Twitch, Blue Sky, Twitter, YouTube, and other platforms. Uh, I don't think threads. Once again, we rely on our audience for our support, and uh, you can sign up to become a backer by going to remapradio.com and following the links and instructions you see there. The basic plan provides access to an ad-free version of this podcast, all the projects we carried over from Waypoint Plus, including 101, Manhunting, the sports podcast, um, which there should be another episode of that this week. The foundation plan is, as we've said, a work in progress. We're trying out new ideas there and discussing a lot of stuff we're really interested in right now. Kato, Patrick, and myself are working through the second season of FX's The Bear which has been a blast to dig into. Your support also lets us set time aside for streaming. This week we streamed some Aliens Dark Descent. Uh, we did some online shopping and, you know, hopefully we did a GeForce Now stream uh, that went well and would not have... Wheel, wheel, wheel. The wheel, wheel. returns. And we're do you want to see, you want to see Patrick go through... Four or five spent multiple hours seeing is it possible to cram 1600 entries into a wheel? Did he find one? He did, disgusting, <laughs> In, just, just incredible. Uh, so hopefully that's gone well and will not have caused every company to panic at the thought of ever, ever working with us. Uh, the, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be nice to have a little bit of diversification, uh, a, a, as it were. And hey, on Friday, we should also have tucked into Exoprimal uh, as a squad. So we'll be, yeah. you know, uh, on, on Tuesday, we'll have been blasting aliens. And on Friday, it's dinosaurs turn in the barrel. So hopefully, hopefully you'll be able to uh, catch, catch the vibe on that if you, if you weren't able to catch it live. We'll be back next week with another episode of Remap Radio. Until then. Thanks so much for choosing to spend some of your time with us. Fuck capitalism. Go home.